0: Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics.
1: And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nephris Initiative. This
0: is the Herpeticulture Podcast, which is part of the Herpeticulture Network. Enjoy the show. Kicking of the tires and lighting of the fires. Here we are.
1: Episode 127.
0: So. Podcasting sort of requires you to sort of be quick on your feet and
1: and pivot nimble. To change N- nimble. I prefer the this, term nimble.
0: This was not planned to be a live show, but due to Phil not knowing what day of the week it was, um, and he thought it was a different show. Here we are, but it's all good because, like I said, as podcasters, you have to you have to be quick on the draw. You got to be a changeling, a shapeshifter. Yes. So we yes. have shifted, and now it is a live show. Uh, we are waiting on Cody. He will be here shortly. Um, if anybody knows Cody, you know that he's probably running around like a chicken with his head cut off, doing a million things at once in preparation for, for this. Um, yeah. Sounds like it'll just be audio for him. You won't see him on video just because of how sort of shoddy their internet is um but that being said this is episode 127 of the herpeticulture podcast which is brought to you by steve snakeshury and his venom hot sauces as well as mp cages and exotics both are very much worth looking into you need a rack you need a cage talk to sean you want some awesome hot sauces to support a good cause uh, hit up Steve and Steve's Snakechewery. So he does a lot of education, a lot of outreach. He does relocations. He takes in and and heals up anything that might be injured, herp wise. And um, any of the money you you send him for the hot sauces goes towards him and his his rescue and his Snaketuary. So please go check it out.
1: Yeah, and I know we've we've talked about it before in the past, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of quote unquote rescues out there, but Steve, if he can't find a good home for these animals, he hasn't euthanized them. They're, they're his. They're going to stay with him, part of the, the, the snake sanctuary. So it, it is a really good program that he's running in terms of education, outreach, but he's maintaining all those animals himself. So every little bit that we can help him uh, helps educate people and keep snakes alive. So. And uh, Justin is laying up a cigar. I know this is the wrong show, but what cigar are you smoking tonight, buddy?
0: So we just started getting some of the new stuff in. This is the Roma Craft Grand Perfecto. So this is a 5 by 60 Perfecto. Truthfully, in the past, when it comes to bigger ring gauge Roma stuff, be it like the, the mandible, I think it is. It's like a 4 by 5 by 60 or something. It's It's a fatter cigar. Like the bigger ring gauges in the Roma stuff, I haven't particularly cared for so I got the the Aquitaine because I like the Habano a little more I like the, sort of the spiciness and the pepperiness and uh, the Cro-Magnon and the bigger gauges especially I haven't been that big of a fan of so I'm trying this out going to try them all out at some point but you know this is uh, just a like the bigger version of the Mode 5 which is a Perfecto just shrunk down to about half the size or so
1: Excellent. Excellent.
0: And my lovely, adoring wife is hooking me up with some coffee here in a second.
1: Nice. I'm doing the same thing. I got a little bit of a cough thing going on, a little, little chest tickle, so I got the old cup of Joe. Uh,
0: so, we, yes, Cody is back. This will not be a four-hour show. We've already talked to Pia. We've already, like Cody even said, he he wants to keep it relatively short on his end. So this may be like half a show with Cody and then half like a one-on-one kind of thing. Um, Like I said, we're just waiting on Cody to show up. So we're going to talk about updates with RPI. Uh, There's the preservation party coming up before Daytona, which is going to be a blast. Enjoy hanging out with everybody. For those of you who
1: don't know, sorry to cut you off, but for those of you who don't know, the RPI is the Reptile Preservation Institute Um, It is founded and run by husband and wife dynamic duo, Cody and Pia. And uh, yeah, so if you want to check that out, it's not, don't just search RPI. You're going to get a ton of, you know, rotations per minute, rotations per instance, but Reptop Preservation Institute, check it out. Sorry about that, Justin. Go on.
0: No, you're good. So they have the preservation party uh, coming up and that is the Thursday before the weekend of Daytona which I believe is like the 17th, I think, is that date?
1: I think it's the 19th. It's a thir- Thursday night, I believe, the night
0: Yeah, because yeah, Saturday's the
1: 21st? Saturday's the 21st, yeah. The okay, show is yes. I think, 21-22.
0: So if you're going to Daytona and you're doing all this stuff, you might as well make the the short trek over. Uh, their, their place is only, I think, an hour and a half, if that, from Daytona, so... Quick drive, not a whole lot of traffic on those roads, in my experience. Um,
1: Yeah, and you'll get to see real Florida. You won't just see, you know, people love Florida for the palm trees and the hotels and the beaches, but there's a lot of state that you don't see as a tourist. And when you take that drive from Daytona out to where they're at, it is very rural. And you'll see palmetto scrubs and cypress heads, and you'll see the real southern Florida. So. Definitely it's check it not out. It's not Southern Florida. Is I actually put a comment in there. It's North Florida, but it's the true South, i.e., I the real Florida. I got you. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I'm in South Florida, and I'm four and a half hours south of them. So it's a very long I I'm, state. I fix my camera
0: and make sure you guys don't see the fact that I'm in my garage.
1: Yeah, we were actually uh, uh we were talking earlier about you know how. You know, we love P and Cody, but you know Cody is, gets to be a little long-winded at times. God bless him. And uh, I was just thinking, like, there's no reason why we can't have an informative Cody episode. But I feel like we should do almost like what some of the other shows have done and do like a two-parter. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think that might be a, a bit of an easier listen. So, for there's the future.
0: Plenty of tangents when we have
1: Cody yes. around. Plenty. Copious amounts of tangents, yes.
0: Did you end up getting
1: anything from Chris? I did not. I think I'm the only one in the group who didn't.
0: I think you're one of the only people in like the country that didn't. Because everyone but, and their mom got something from Chris Pain Shab at Badlands or Pediculture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Selfless plug. The, uh, Chris is amazing. And I don't know if it was like his conscience and his mind saying, I didn't send anything to Phil. But he messaged me the day he was shipping everything out. And he goes, ooh, ooh, look. My friend's getting out of his pyromelina. Do you want me to hit him up for you? And I recently just acquired a handful of snakes, to say the least. So I will not be diving on those king snakes. And then he told me he's like, "Oh, my my pyros that he gave to his friend, that that guy is probably getting out of his as well." And I may be looking at acquiring those. But again, I've off a lot. Of, I have a lot of chewing to do as of recent. So. We'll leave it alone and see what happens in the near future. So yes, he did not forget about me.
0: Well, he sent me a pair of New County thorn scrub rats. Um which he had he had came he came across them a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, and he's been sitting on them since. And so he also sent me that bear's that he caught when he was in Texas, was it last week? Week before last yeah,
1: with, with the coolest photo. On any Herb trip yeah. of all time. I, I don't care how beautiful the scenery was. The photo that he took of the food truck with your beard eye. The trilobite. That just, the trilobite, that just made it all. And the fact that you and I saw that and you actually contributed to yeah, it. Yeah,
0: drew on it. Not well, the bears, I mean, but the, yeah, the graffiti yeah. on the, so the food, there's a food truck in Alpine, like in the town of Alpine. It's called the trilobite. If you ever go there, it's actually really good. And they have Sharpies, and you like everyone just like signs or writes on the truck. It's an older truck. They clearly don't care. And so someone wrote "Bear Eye over Alterna, and I wrote a little arrow to the Bear Eye that said Amen. So Chris took that Beards that he found and took a picture of it in front of that, you know, just a matter of like a month after we'd been there and that had been written. You know, it's. Uh,
1: I have, you know. it, it, if you can stall for a few seconds, I have yeah. the picture from our trip and I have the picture. From Chris. So. Yeah. So he sent me
0: that mail. Uh, I offered all three of them food last night and they all ate. So nice. Like no problems, no issues. And I'm going to get them pretty much rocking and rolling and eventually get some dewormer in them and it'll be included into the rotation probably next season. So I'm planning to cool them this winter, warm them up in the spring Make make the magic happen, but the Baird's is a Davis Mountains. It's uh, Olympia Canyon, is where it came from. It's a male. He's a little thin, which I would kind of expect, for, given the territory and whatnot. And we're gonna fix that real quick. I'm not gonna make him obese, but I'm definitely gonna feed him a little heavy for the first. uh, first few weeks kind of get them get some some weight on them and we'll be in good shape
1: yeah <clears throat> i'm trying to find the picture of you writing the a uh, the amen
0: oh did you actually take a picture of me writing it
1: yeah and i don't i think i it, I my may have deleted it because it was blurry it was one of those times where it's like oh i'll just take a quick picture and then like you look at it hours later and you're like oh that picture is horrible Yeah, I don't have the picture of you drawing it, but I do have the picture of your snake in front of it, so we'll show that.
0: Lay it on me. Sir Baird is in the chat. Tavion is in here. Mike Kosicki, Billy Jenkins.
1: The whole shebang.
0: Usual suspects. Yeah, so someone in Alpine, Texas that was there has good taste and knows that Baird IR are better than Alterna. Nothing against Alterna. I do love Alterna, but if I have a choice, I mean, I'm going to go with the Bairds. Ten out of eight times. And I like how
1: that juvenile doesn't look like a baby gray rat snake. Like, you can tell.
0: Frankly, I'm amazed that he even could get that shot because those things are kind of like Rebels and the fact that they're a real bitch to get pictures of because they don't sit still. Yeah. Like anytime you see me post a picture of a Baird's on Instagram or something, it's probably like right as I took the hide out or something, like before it could fully wake up and realize what was happening.
1: Well, I think too is you can tell by the snake's posture that it was probably rolled in a ball in someone's hand. Yeah. And like they, cupped. yeah, they probably had it cupped under their hand, you know. And uh, real quick, three, two, one, take a picture. Yeah. So
0: he's super chill. Like that is one thing that Chris noted. And I mean, birds are kind of known for being mellow, which I find a little funny because most of mine, they're not bitey. They're just, they're, they're very flighty, very quick to Musk, very quick to like try and take off. Um, and this guy, I mean, he's, he's chill. I mean, that may change sort of like with the scrub situation, you know, get him settled for a little bit and he may fire up a little bit. Um, Thorn scrubs—they're pretty mellow too. The female's a little, little spazzy. Male's a little spazzy. I would kind of expect this from from field-collected animals. So, right, um, right. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thorn scrubs are cool. That's a Emrei subspecies, uh, I guess. Depending on who you ask. And. Uh,
1: what is the subspecies name? Milmorum. Milmorum. Very cool but I mean,
0: it's a subspecies that's recognized in the, the field guide, like the Texas snakes book.
1: Nice. You know, so
0: I don't know. I, I thought they were cool. He found some, I was like, man, those are gorgeous. And he's like, Oh, you know, I mean, he found that female like crossing a highway or something while he was driving. So we cause we were, he was like video chatted us that day when he was driving and he right. was like, I just caught this big female thorn scrub crossing the highway and saved her. And he's like, I'm going to hold on to her. And then like three weeks later, two weeks later, maybe even a week later, he was like, Oh, I found this awesome aberrant male. And I was like, hold them. Sold them to me. Sold them The male is gorgeous. He's got some aberrant aberrant patterning and stuff like that. And uh, female looks pretty standard. Kind of a darker grayish chocolate brown kind of deal. Male's a little lighter. Um, they're cool. I'm excited to see what happens. I, the only other person I know that's actively sort of breeding those, and there, I'm sure there's plenty of people that I'm just not aware of, um, but Chris Montross at Dark Horse Herpeticulture, recently hatched out some and he had some like reverse stripe ones too like really wild looking I, I don't know they're cool so and he had some from Nueces County as well and then Jake got a pair of yellow rats small like yearling yellow rats that were pretty neat they were Seminole County I think those were originally from Chris as well from Montross uh, got him a little Mexican pine And I think that was it. Um, I mean, Chris was sending out packages all all over the place. So, yeah, in the world, he's a beacon of positivity. And I don't know how he does it.
1: Inspirational, truly inspirational.
0: Just a a sliver of that mentality. He's just so damn positive all the time. You are a freak.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's one of those scenarios where it's like, you know, we always ask ourselves, "What would so and so do in this scenario?" Or, "Oh, you know who? You know who knows a lot about this? Bob knows a lot about this. Well, let's let's let's. What would Bob do in this scenario?" I can't tell you how many times a week, I'll be honest. I mean, I say it out loud, but I think to myself, "How would Chris handle this?" You know
0: with you a know. smile on his face whatever the answer is. Well I mean I
1: just think about it like you know the, the a worldly educated fellow has his own business a family man you know and a very prominent herpetoculturist so it's, the, it's he's the full package.
0: And he you likes know. cigars. He's a cigar and, he, and, he, and he's a cigar guy, right? But then you that, need that, to get him to Daytona and we're set.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So
0: Jason Keller, this Palmetto's Exotic Signature Series rack that I'm working on is going to be inspirational, and I'm sure there's going to be a follow-up to that that about something about how it doesn't hold snakes well at all.
1: Nice, nice. I'm waiting for it. Yeah.
0: That's what... Keller reminds me of that every day. A, my rack sucks. B, rhino rats are inferior to Baron's Racers. And that's it. Wait, wait. Say that again. He says he insists. I won't even say he says he insists that Baron's racers are superior to rhino
1: rats. Didn't he just produce? He
0: did just hatch out a clutch of Baron's.
1: Okay. He's just... selling
0: them for $5 a piece. So if anybody wants Baron's racers, please contact <laughs> Jason Keller because he has a whole clutch of them and he's selling them for next to nothing. Said he wasn't holding anything back. He was buy three, get three free.
1: That's amazing. That's amazing. What's funny is (laughs) I thought those were rhinos at first glance when he sent me those photos. And I was like, Oh man, congrats rhinos and their barons. And I was like, that's why I just asked. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love that because that probably upset him.
1: I know that's the best part. (laughs) But he actually, uh, Jason, but uh, well, we have to get him on here at some point. By the and way,
0: and if anybody's curious, his Instagram is king underscore baboon one. So there
1: you go. Um, he said, he, along
0: with the custom rack, you can lose every one of
1: them. Nice, nice. That's good. Good job, Jay. The uh, him and I were just talking about this is snakes this morning. That's that's hilarious. I want to see this rack. I want to see if there's very large air holes. Never
0: It's Probably. Like it's just a picture of like a a lidless tub on the floor. My Palmetto Ghost Exotic Series rack.
1: That's amazing.
0: Okay. So in my defense, I have no idea who made this rack. I don't know where it came from. My dad ended up getting them in a trade for something like two years ago. They did the job. Well, did they? I'll take that back. They didn't do the job. They hold most snakes as long as they're a certain size. Uh, and so this is like my only option right now. So I'm using it. The shims have worked wonders. Good. Um, but now sort of the question is, is do. So I have my male in a in a pretty big setup, pretty big cage, right? I'm kind of at a point now where I need more space for some of these racks for all the beards that I have growing up now and the corns and stuff. And so the question now is, do I get rid of the brettles to make space for said, like expansion, I guess, would be the, the
1: word for it. Well, I think the, my knee-jerk reaction is, because you're not diving into the heloderma just yet, put the brettles in the garage.
0: I could and I
1: just that would just be the simplest yeah you know?
0: but it's like constant heat if it were one thing where like if it were colder that'd be fine but because of how warm it gets in the
1: garage yeah but they're from't they the they're
0: not in freaking 90 degree heat constantly throughout the year.
1: Wait, you're saying that your garage is 90 I'm degrees? I'm saying it's
0: hot in here with very little like ventilation. I don't, I don't know. I'm just, okay. and I, where the hell would it freaking go, man? I, I don't know exactly.
1: I don't, know, I don't know how your garage is set up currently. I remember what it was. It's that was almost I a year ago. I feel
0: like we clean it once a month, like get everything organized, and then within a week it's back to being just chaos. So. But I don't know. I do. So the guy that I got him from originally lives like an hour from me down in Savannah or outside of Savannah. Um, And he had talked about borrowing him to pair with his female. And I may just have him take both and hold on like he can breed them and do whatever. And then maybe I'll, you know, by that time, maybe I'll have more space to get back into them. And I can either like get a pair of babies or something. I don't, it's so hard, man, because I I love those snakes. Like the females, the first brittles I ever got. And I love her. And the males, just the coolest, coolest snake in the room, you know, cause he's such a, so chill.
1: Yeah. I say you, uh, but I could fit up, a lot in that spot. Or put him in Ellie's room. Give Ellie a little responsibility.
0: You understand. I have a, a wife that has to sign off on all of these things.
1: Yeah. Bring it up Get a it.
0: shed in the backyard. I've thought we've, that's, believe me, I've thought about it. I've thought about converting the garage that gets shot down. The shed thing, you might as well convert the garage because it's probably a little cheaper. Um, and I think pretty much the conclusion is now just going to wait a little while and then at some point we'll, when we buy our next house it'll just be a bigger house. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's funny she thought when when I got that stuff from Chris she thought I got those pygmies and so she came in last night she's like did you get those rattlesnakes? I was like no, seriously? It's like it's for real like I'm not that dumb. I'm not not facing your wrath. Nice. Nice. You think I'm an idiot? Oh. Well. Ooh. and I told her not to answer that so right I tried to get her to build herself get well not build herself but get a she shed and not going for it it's a no win situation negotiations have broken down and is in? no not yet I was checking my phone to see if there's any messages oh okay are you? Yeah. I mean, are you? Are you at liberty to talk about the stuff you got?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was. I was actually holding that for snakes and stogies, but if we're oh. doing some one-on-one stuff right now, I mean, we're live. I might as well talk about it. The um,
0: <coughs> well, we can talk about it now, and then Monday we can have pictures, like show and tell.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, my good friend Marcus and I, Marcus from MJ Ecological, uh, you know, we've done a lot of sharing of species in the past. I buy him stuff. He buys me stuff. Hey, hold on to these. Hey, you hold on to those. And we never really had any like definitive projects, you know? <clears throat> and, uh, he had mentioned that he wanted to, he's building a new venomous room in his garage, like actually in his garage. So it'll be a self-contained room in the garage with its own, uh, air conditioning system, its own electricity, ventilation, all that. And he wants to basically make a lab, um, no, we're not going to be doing any milking or anything like that. Just lab quality equipment. Um, he has his own uh, microscope for doing feet hyper levels. of that. Awesome. Yeah, hyper, I- hyper level, I- hyper levels of awesome.
0: Hyper levels.
1: No, hyper levels. Hyper. Of awesome. So, um, and it wouldn't shock me if you know Scott's room was you know some uh, inspiration for Marcus. I'm sure. So you know he had acquired a, a, a several different species of viper recently, and uh, he's like, hey man. If underground gets in something that you like, let's 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 go in. Let's let's buy a lot of them. And I said, you know what? Underground's getting Egypt in soon. I said we really should get into Serasti Serastis because I've had them before. I've kept them for other people before in terms of like strictly underground. All these other wholesalers, they're,
0: just sand boas.
1: <clears throat> they're basically Sambo's, um, with devil horns and super toxic venom. Um, and they're awesome. And they're very difficult to keep in South Florida specifically because of the overabundance of humidity that we have. Um, they're North African Saharan type snakes and we did it. So we bought a lot of them and, uh, it's going to be cool, man. It's going to be fun. Uh, I got we got two gravid females, so hopefully, if they do drop their eggs and they don't just abort them, um, that'll be a wild ride because that'll be our first time having eggs from them. And then here's uh, a question then: yeah. to
0: that because they are a more arid species, do you incubate the eggs with less humidity and more dry than you would other stuff?
1: Well, uh, we always hold on one second. Jesus, it looks worse than it is. Um, that was muted, by the way, right?
0: Yeah. Okay, it just good. Look bad.
1: Yeah. The, <laughs> um, it's talking, man. I've been talking all day long at work today, so I'm, like, dying. Um, hey. So, hey, he's here. So, very few people have actually successfully on purpose bred them in captivity. And the people that have, I don't want to say that it was luck. They knew what they were doing, but there's still very little known about them in the wild in terms of, you know, seasonal breeding and... Yeah. Uh, precipitation and food intake and uh, i mean they know that they copulate under the sand which is actually super cool um so i've got painful. it does um so i've found some papers that are a little bit older about 15 20 years old uh going into some captive breeding done in a scientific in a scientific sense so i'm going to be focused on them and i have some books that are a little outdated and you know we're going to roll with the punches and, and Work accordingly. So that was like the best
0: best line from Deadpool. Was that sounds about as much fun as a sandpaper dildo?
1: All right, all right. So, without further ado, everyone, we present uh, Mr. Cody Bartolini of the Reptile Preservation Institute. Does he live? Cody. Codeth. Hello. Hmm. Cody. <laughs> Interesting. So, what's
0: as far as the humidity thing, though? Like, what's the plan for that? Like, are you guys gonna put like dehumidifiers in there with them or something? Hey guys, well, I'm gonna
1: rooms? Yeah. So, right now, mine are with the main collection, but the majority of my animals are African, and the majority of my animals are either arid or desert. Um, with the exception of, like, uh, squams and some North American stuff, everything is pretty much steppe land, grassland, very dry. Um, so I'm not too concerned in that realm. Uh, but the thought of dehumidifier is definitely an option. Um, and honestly, I'm, I'm keeping tabs on things right now. I don't think it's going to be too much of a problem because the, my room typically has about 30%, 32% ambient humidity. And it's funny, the minute we got them home – they all started either going into blue or shedding so it was almost like wow we got a little huh. humidity let's let's take that opportunity yeah, to, to, to to slow the skin and uh, i'm wondering if that will be low enough to basically not have to replicate replicate the micro the microclimate because they're, kinda, what...
0: they're almost like the montane stuff and that like not right. giving them something it's makes them semi difficult i don't
1: know Right, you know what right.
0: I mean. Like I would love to keep a lot of the bamboo rat snakes and stuff, but I'm gonna try. I have to nowhere in my house internet. where it'll be cold, cold enough.
1: You yeah, know?
0: yeah. So it'd be hard for me to keep them in that like low 70s sort of range. Right. Without keeping them somewhere where the cat can have access to them, and you know, Katie not get upset at me. So.
1: Oh, I get it, and uh, the majority of the animals that we have, they're gonna be in Cambro style rack with complete back heat like the whole wall is heat tape so i'm not too concerned with getting the temperature up appropriately i'm more concerned with keeping the temperature past sunset and then having an appropriate night drop because i was speaking with nipper about this because nippers obviously traversed the middle east more than anyone else i know and he was telling me that in most parts of say the negev and the sinai and you know the deserts uh, uh west of cairo west of you know the nile it drops real quick i mean massive temperature swing yeah 15 degrees celsius drop 15 degrees in in centigrade drop every night but excuse me but i've been watching the weather from like cairo and from luxor and it's still 100 degrees up until about midnight so I don't know if it's just because of the time of the year, just like or it's exactly, just like that, or if it's because <laughs> it's summer for them still. I, I don't right. know. So we still have a lot of temperature bugs to work on. But I made a decision that I'm going to sacrifice a three foot display vision because I have I have a good amount of them, uh, and I'm going to do it up like ancient Egypt, like put hieroglyphics in the walls and you know do a lot of stone and rock and stuff. And uh, mm. <laughs> oh yeah. And Nipper was giving me some ideas. And I think that's going to be the harder thing to keep because the rack system will have the panel and it will maintain the temperature for longer. But I know that vision cage has no insulation at all. It's just going to vent everything out Mm -hmm. and it's not going to hold heat. So I think I may do halogens on the back and then actually put, heat pads on the walls of the, on the plastic where it adheres to the sides just it in the oven. and then make basically make a radiant heat panel on either side of the enclosure so and then I'm also gonna have foam in there that'll be like the. Well, rock what if
0: walls. that's what I was getting like what if you just bought some insulate like panel foam insulation and attach that to the sides
1: well that's the, that's the goal so I'm gonna get um there's the super dense foam that uh is used for like modeling and stuff and i'm basically going to measure out the walls cut it to fit and then i'm gonna do some arts and crafts with some oh, hieroglyphics like
0: doing it in
1: the foam I got in, it. Yeah, in like carving it into the foam and then you know doing a grout or, or uh, a textured paint or whatever it may be and kind of go from there so but that's gonna be that's just that's the fun aspect i gotta get them established first get them eating get them pooping get them shedding so gonna be a long road ahead but it's gonna be fun i'm excited so i like it yeah and we'll save pictures and video for monday and uh but yeah but cody's here and yeah i think it,
0: he's, to he's trying to working out some some connection stuff to make sure his audio quality is the best possible uh johnny asked have you guys tried incubation method where you put the eggs on egg crate uh like the plastic egg crate light diffuser uh, on top of flooded hatch right if so how were your experiences that's actually how i did the cyania both clutches the bairds the corns kind of so i did the uh it's not the hatch right i don't think but it's that aps at the aquatic plants all i was talking about that flooded not i wouldn't say necessarily flooded but definitely high, super saturated to where there is some like standing water you know in the Little half inch of of substrate there is with the egg crate on top and then eggs on top of that with a clump of spag on one end which seems to help sort of regulate humidity pretty well and sort of keep it keep it up Um, and it worked great that's sort of the method that Chris uh, I think Lugvert is how you would pronounce his name he's over in Europe and he when I asked about incubating cyania that was how he did it so I just took that same method and ran with it, and it worked fine for the corns. It worked great for the bairds. Uh, I like it because the box is is very humid itself, but the eggs themselves are dry, which is exactly sort of what you're shooting for. Um, With the corns, I did a little different where I did that same setup, but I took I made like a bed of spag on top of that light diffuser and just laid them in that. And some of those eggs got, I don't know, that was kind of a rough clutch to begin with, but um, it worked. I mean, they hatched and whatever. I probably wouldn't do it again, but <clears throat> just do the sort of the traditional way, like I did with the other clutches. Uh, I did try the so I did the overwater thing with my first chondro clutch, and because of the tub I was using, which did not have a good seal, I had really big issues with hydration and keeping those eggs just, like plump um, from like the start too. Like very early on, I was getting dimpled eggs and dehydrated eggs, so. Overwater thing probably works when you have them in like a sistema box or something. Um, something with a better seal on it cuz what I did with the condos it didn't work so. But I know that it's likely because there was no um, ventilation just sucked. So. <clears throat> Are you there Cody? I should be. He is here.
2: He sounds good. Here I am. What's up,
0: buddy? Um, he lives.
2: Hey, man! It wouldn't. Uh, it would be weird if I was on time.
0: <laughs> it's part of the, part of the, the show with Cody. He's yeah, like I'll an apparition. A
2: bit, uh, all our team. Uh, all our uh, all our team members and Pia like to say it's Cody time. You know, it's like whenever. I mean, Pia will go out of her way to tell me that we um, are scheduled for a flight hours before we're supposed to actually be there because generally i'm gonna be a few hours late because i'll be tending to animal care and all that stuff and it's always like one more thing before we go oh wait did i check that and we have missed a, a couple flights because of this you know so it's i mean it's a real thing and it's a real problem but uh you know i'm aware of it and that's uh, that's important and uh, when you're when you're growing what we're growing it's kind of like um you know, you're all in for a while until um, until you get uh, team members and stuff that are going to be able to wear all the hats that we're wearing right now. You know, we wear a lot of hats, so it's um, you know, just we're always on the go, always doing stuff, and it's like a, you know, I don't not get back to people intentionally. It's, uh, it's. I mean, we are on the go all the time, and you know, here here we are. What time is it? It's it's nine forty. And right after we hop off the phone with you guys, we have to catch a big male alligator and move him into another enclosure because he's having some beef with a uh, another big male alligator. And, well, that's just the kind of stuff that we have to do it's sometimes. It's like dogs, so.
0: man. Just hop in there and pull them off each other.
2: Yeah, I mean, you can. It's a little different. <laughs> um I was, uh, I was trying to get this animal to, to move out on its own and see if I could kind of corral it into another enclosure, but uh, wasn't having it took, took back to the water. So I was like, well, we're going to have to get some ropes on it and move it. So I don't want to do that uh, alone. So um, Daniel's here, Daniel Lopez, is one of our uh, team members who, um, it's here all the time and when, as, when the second bet we need daniel he is uh he's on his way to, uh, to save the day in this case it was bringing more uh, uh wire panel fencing to make an emergency holding enclosure for this alligator until get its primary enclosure done and um you know daniel went out and got the wire and uh it up on the old trailer just got here and is just sitting there waiting, watching the alligator, uh, wait, waiting for me to hop off here. And, uh, and then we're gonna, we're gonna catch this animal up and, and move it into the, the enclosure after we, after we, uh, fence it up and everything. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to have help, dedicated help, but, um, yeah. So let's talk about some stuff, guys.
1: Well, r- real quick, is it easier to do this at night or in the daytime? Like... Does it matter? I mean, obviously it's it's hotter in the in the daytime and you're sweating. But is there a re- specific reason why you pick the nighttime, or that's just the fastest you can do it?
2: Um, we so um, I uh, I needed uh, uh, extra hands to to work this animal. This is a ten foot um, male alligator, and um, uh, Pia just got back and uh, called Daniel in to, to do this because. Um, we we have two about about ten foot alligators that we got from FWC nuisance alligator trappers that um, ironically Derek uh, Dykstra uh, put us in touch with and who had taken the rattlesnake conservancy handling courses and is also a, a nuisance uh, alligator trapper and uh, the first alligator that. Um, uh, and the uh, alligator trapper's name's uh, Ron, Ron uh, Sanderson, and he's a uh, super good guy. Um, and like, uh, took to him right away, but he.
0: R- R- Raggy. Good old Hughes net.
2: Yeah, that's kind of cool. Dare, dare put us oh. in touch with each other. And you know, he says that he tries. You know, if there's a facility.
1: Hmm. Cody. Cody.
2: Yeah.
1: Done. Dumb. Dumb.
0: It's the only downside to where they live. Yeah. Everything else about it is awesome.
1: The question is, oh, okay. I was going to say, I feel bad if he's still talking and doesn't know that the feed's has got... Uh, I'm sure he'll jump back in. Well, that sounds uh, like ben a.
0: Plays in the background.
1: Yeah, right. That that sounds like a riveting evening, to say the least.
0: It's never a dull moment at the Bartolini compound.
1: Do you have to call it a compound?
0: I just, it's.
1: Why not? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's not like is. a
0: cult or anything. No,
1: I mean, it, <clears throat> I don't know. I think compound. I think it has like a. Like a like a wall around it, like a fort, you know, which they do not have. But I imagine there's a ton more fencing with all the croc stuff uh, than what you and I saw last time we were there.
0: Mm-hmm. So. I think a good a good bit of that is actually I think done. Okay.
2: Back, yeah, bro.
0: He's back. There he is. He lives.
2: Hey guys, I um, so I switched to our internet to uh, from my from our internet to our to my personal hotspot because although we pay for internet and this is our second time out here paying for internet and it's just better to use our phones and the hotspots because we are um, kind of uh, rural and that's good and bad.
0: That's what we were saying just before you you dropped was that's like the only bad thing about where y'all are at is the the internet.
2: It re- it really is true, and um, you know it's um, it's a blessing and a curse. But anyway, yeah. So so basically, the, these the the alligator that the first alligator that we got from Ron um, was a, a beautiful animal that actually came from UF campus, University of Florida. So it, it's it's uh, it's a true Florida gator and uh we he thought that was super cool we thought that was cool and it has a interesting history behind him as as well um the uh, one of the females this alligator was hanging out with um uh, actually came up while um some folks were having a picnic on the bank and started eating uh their lunch like like they got video of it and posted it, and it was like the girl's birthday, and they're like, "Happy birthday!" And like this alligator just like doesn't even care. Just came up, just started eating their sandwich or whatever it was. And uh, the alligator that we got, um, who who we affectionately call Al, um, for he was found on Lake Alice, and also there's some um, University of Florida um, yeah, history with 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 uh, Albert uh, Albert in Alberta and for all the uf folks that um you know know about that stuff they'll know i'm, I'm from las vegas so i just know what was regurgitated to me so like that's that's about the extent of my knowledge there but i know your Gainesville people are gonna love that and uh, the video of that female eating that lunch um al's in the background watching her and of, of course they they had to take her off and you know uh Dispose of her, uh, which was unfortunate. Ron said that they would have uh, placed that animal with us. They would have have known earlier. But when they caught Al, um, he was. Uh, they measured him at nine feet seven inches, and he's just a really good-looking alligator. And uh, so they wanted to do something with him. So uh, he called. Ron called Derek, having taken the rattlesnake conservancy course. Derek put him in touch with us, and he actually drove Al to the facility and let us look at them and then we unloaded them together and um, put them in the display. And I've got, we got all of that footage. It was actually just Ron Pia and I getting him off the truck and and putting him in his temporary enclosure um, as we build them a a larger one that has a natural pond. And um, I just have to edit that and put it on our Patreon. but uh, it was pretty cool. But right after that, Ron and uh, one of his other guys, Um, got another call for another almost 10 foot alligator that was um, found in uh, um, uh, Levy County or Levi County as as I'm uh, pronouncing it. And uh, it was under somebody's uh, Toyota Tundra and it was, it was another good looking alligator. So Ron got it and they're like, can can you take another alligator? We're like, well, we're almost finished with the primary enclosures, so we like we let's let's take him and see if if him and Al will get along temporarily. As they're two big male alligators, so believe me when I say I know that they may not get along. But in a lot of instances, you know, um, when animals are placed together, nothing happens. You know, so especially with the crocodilians, sometimes you put them in together and they want to kill each other for whatever reason. Sometimes you put them together and they're completely fine. And uh, so we thought we could put them in uh, together temporarily until we moved them to a bigger enclosure and we put uh, the animal that we are ca- now calling Tundra because he was under a Toyota Tundra. You know, how we picked our name is pretty, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, pretty basic. But um, yeah, actually Pia came up with, with both Al and, uh, and Tundra, you know, kind of putting the situation that the animal was found in into the name because the story is cool and it brings up the story when we're talking to folks about these animals. And, um, so Al, you know, from Lake Alice and, and Alberta and, and, um, Alice or, uh, or Albert and Alberta and then Tundra found under a Toyota Tundra. So it's Al and Tundra. And we thought they were going to be buddies, but they are not being buddies right now. And we don't want to leave Tundra in there with Al uh, overnight, because Al is Al is also blind in one eye, um, and he's got um, teeth marks from oh, old old scarred injuries from clearly not being friendly with other alligators. So um, you know, but you never know whose fault it is. You know, it could have been a bigger male bite him, and he was actually the cool guy. But you know, sometimes it's the it's the bullies that are the most beat up because they're asking for it. And sometimes mm-hmm. they get their ass their ass handed to them um so yeah and and that tundra's actually a little bit bigger than al too so we thought you know he might have been the problem but it was the other way around and uh so we don't want them to hurt each other too bad they could they could take they could take some bites from each other because alligators are kind of meant to get bit by each other i mean you see while that i mean that the alligator that was eating those those folks lunch were uh you know was missing an arm and we were talking to these guys and and they kept you know they grab alligators all the time that have you know club tails missing legs uh one of the trappers was telling us there was a female that he he caught that had no front legs and was uh, completely healed over and was uh, wow. you know uh, robust and healthy and uh he, he showed us a picture of an animal that that they caught that had almost no top jaw but was completely healed over and the animal's body weight was good so you could just see how resilient these animals Man, are even, even in the worst scenarios. And so he, he's got to, he came to us with some some bumps and bruises because he was wandering around on somebody's property and couldn't find a body of water. That's why he was under the tundra and he was, you know, truck going under fences and climbing over stuff and, you know, whipping around and they were trying to pull him out from out from under the truck. So he kind of was banged up already and, and poor guy's now getting, you know, it handed to him by Al. So, so we're going to move him over and, uh, not not keep them together but sometimes you know sometimes it's totally fine too i mean at the alligator farm yeah in the main lagoon when you walk in there there's about 40 alligators at any given time a bunch of big males and a bunch of females but um you know you have 40 animals in an enclosure it's it's a it's kind of a technique called crowding for lack of a better word You, you you if you only have a couple males in there and a couple females they're gonna be a lot meaner to each other because they're they're protecting more area, and they're a little bit more territorial. You put a bunch of males and a bunch of females and they're kind of, you know, laying all over the bank, like seals, you know, there's not, they're just okay with each other. Sometimes they Mm -hmm. dip at one another. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not as bad as if you only have a couple animals together where they just can kind of target, you know, the one that's getting bullied, is just going to get targeted and targeted and targeted. And, um, But sometimes that's not the case. So you kind of just have to mix match and see. You know, we have five more less crocodiles that um, uh, we got from Dallas World Aquarium. And uh, they're all sisters. And they're about four feet. And we have visual barriers in their enclosure. We have um, visual barriers in the water so they can get away from, you know, like palm fronds. Um, to, to block their, their view of one another if they don't want to be seen or they could hide under the palm front and um, if, if there's an animal that's aggressing on them because most of the time they're fine but sometimes you'll see them chasing each other around and being crocodiles and stuff and you know that's I, like the best would be animals kept uh, only you know maybe like a male and a couple females or or like uh, you know where they all kind of know each other and there's and, and they're a group that gets along and keeps keeps keep that group together. You know, and no. you add more animals. You know, sometimes animals get targets on their back. Sometimes they get along, and um, you know that crowding technique on a lot of you know you'll see with with like um, you know crocodile farms and stuff. There's a lot of crocodiles there, and they just kind of hang out. You know, like I'm sure some of them have their yeah. injuries, but you know you you'll see like a lot of perfect crocodiles in those farms you know because they have to kind of have them perfect for the most part so um but uh but yeah it's a it's it's art and a science but we we're gonna we're gonna pull him and get it out so anybody that's Mm -hmm. listening to this that's that's coming to the reptile preservation party on uh uh august 19th thursday before the daytona national reptile breeders expo could come down and check out the rest of the story and see these animals in person for a little shameless plug that i threw in there
0: yeah that's there's so i do something similar uh with the crowding thing with like my my grow outs on my mice Mm. when i have a bunch of a handful of youngsters together i found that if you you put about if you have like say you have ten in one tub and I take another if I mix them up at all like I usually put at least another 10 in there from another group because I find if you only put a handful in those those small handful are the ones that get jacked up the most but if I make the numbers about even it seems to sort of cancel itself out and they seem to do a lot better socially yeah
2: yeah, yeah. That's, uh, well and, and 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 same with our rodents you know we uh there's a lot of different recipes to, to breed rodents, but the one that we're using right now is we'll do three males and 15 females uh, in the breeder tubs. These are, these are larger breeder tubs, so obviously, that's a lot of rats, yeah. and, and uh, the tubs are like three feet long, two feet wide, like eight inches tall or something like that. And um, you know, and, and when it's hotter, sometimes I'll pull, pull the female numbers down a little bit. but um, but we have fans going on top of the uh, tubs and whatnot, so it really relieves there and exhaust fans going and air moving. so it's not too too bad. But um, we'll do three males, but the the, the trick with that is, um, you gotta raise those males together from mm. from little little babies. They gotta know each other a whole bin of males, whole bin of males, raise them from, from weans all the way to breeders. And they're totally fine with each other. You put three together and, you know, I mean, they might, I don't know what actually goes down in there. You know, they might squabble a little bit, but they're totally fine. I never see um, any, any bite wounds or anything on the male. Sometimes you do, sometimes there's a dick in the group and then you could analyze that. as, But, but not, but if you, if typically what we've seen um, when we raise the, the males together, two to three, males um per tub the males are totally fine with one another but let's say one of those well one of the three dies and you you can't grab another mature male and put it with that, that group because those two are going to kick his ass mm-hmm. and they and they and they are not they are not nice to each other uh in that case yeah they are I mean, brutal man yeah i it, like i was i was really shocked the first time we did that you know because like it was when we raised my bow like, these guys seem like they're pretty chill. Like, I'll just grab this one and, you know, and it's like, no, or or the other two are fine. And the one that goes in is is the, the bully, you know? And mm-hmm. so if, if one dies and we need to, uh, you know, add a male, we will euthanize the group, at, or not the group of females, but we will euthanize the other two males. And um, and then we'll put three new ones in rotation, and that that know each other, or else it's just uh, it's an octagon fight, and it's not pretty.
0: Do you notice the females ever ganging up on a new male?
2: Like, uh, like throwing themselves at the male, or like... no,
0: just like like them bullying a a, a new male. Because I notice, um... like, if you have a group together, if you introduce a new. Anything, any any new body into that group, they that new body is typically going to be the one that's going to get the most fucked up.
2: Yeah, I think I think maybe if it's really, um, I I haven't really seen it to where it was a problem. Like I haven't seen males get bloody while well, immediately like females start biting at them or anything like that. Usually when we throw new males in there it's the females running from them, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, they're like, oh God, you know, a bunch of bros just walked in the bar and they just like get away from me. And, uh, you know, so usually that's the case. I've never, uh, but not to say that it it doesn't happen. I know that like some of the older females, um, you know, they may be a little bit more temperamental, so they might be the ones to do it, but the younger Mm -hmm. ones don't, don't seem so yeah, because like the older ones are like over it. They're like, you know, get, you know, they're 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 over that shit, you know. So they're a little, you know, a young, young male that doesn't know what he's doing, you know, going after that cougar. He, you know, she's not, <laughs> you know, she's not in. He ain't it, ready. So yeah, yeah, and um, you know, but that, but if you add, and the same goes for females, you know, if we if we pull a, f- a few females out and put them into birthing tubs, do like, oh, we do it, we um will will breed in the main breeder things. And then when the females are pregnant, we move them into individual birthing tubs. They give birth in the birthing tubs, raise them for a, few, a couple of weeks. And then we uh, uh, pair females together in group maternity to, to kind of uh, share the workload and, and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, uh, raise them more well-roundedly and, mm-hmm. and, and it works. Um, but uh when like you pull some females and put them over to birthing and you're like, uh, when we'll have uh, holder bands, freedom breeder holders, that'll have females that have weaned out their babies and we'll put them in a holder with a fan on it and let them kind of like chill out for a week out of breeding rotation. And like, you know, be nice to them. We're nice to our feeders. We, uh, you know, we, we don't, uh, we, we do like little enrichment stuff and give them extra, extra things. And, you know, uh, just kind of, like not just breed them into the ground and then it's also it's also good too because then you could um, kind of cycle them at the same time where you can kind of get more consistent uh, you know reproduction and stuff and kind of get your timing down a little bit like any rodent operation it's like everybody kind of has their their rhythm of the room if you will and they've got their own kind of recipe how they like to do it and you know, some people don't do the individual breeding or the birthing tubs and and whatnot. They'll just do like a 1.3 group. Those females raise up their rats and and you know to in the in the same tub and they just pull them a- as they want to and move them to another tub or feed them off or whatever. So mm-hmm. like a lot of maybe small breeders or keepers will do something like that. You know, because they don't need to, they don't need quantity. Um, so that's that's one way you could do it if you don't need quantity. If you're trying to get more of a a systematic breeding for larger quantities, you know, the, the individual birthing tubs and being able to know how many babies your females are throwing. And when we, when you have to pull them out of rotation and stuff, you can kind of keep an eye on it a little bit more efficiently, but right. uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it definitely keeps me busy. It's about 75%, 50 to 75% of what, what I'm doing mostly, but there's all kinds of reptile we've, stuff. We've seen that there. action. Every time you'll see it this year too. Every, I think every time we're
0: at your place there's at least yeah. two of you working in there, like Yeah, I,
2: I mean I'm, I'm I'm definitely the director of the Rat Barn for sure. I'm like I'm I'm in there all the time. And uh but I do I do enjoy it. It's uh you know, not so much in August, but it's uh my favorite times to be in the Rat Barn are October, November, December, yeah. January, February, without in a doubt. Florida. Uh, and in northern Florida, it's a little bit better because you get a little bit crisper. You know, our property, we got, mm-hmm. uh, we've got we got uh, longleaf pine, turkey oak, live oak, just like, it's just kind of, it's refreshing Florida and then, you know, we're not too far away from tropical, you know, subtropical Florida and so it's kind of nice up here.
0: Do you notice better litters when it's cooler versus warmer?
2: i don't know i'm so i'm so sporadic with anything that we're 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 producing you know depending on what it is and and uh, and just haphazard and we've been so busy with building up uh stuff that i i haven't really been um focused you know all uh, every all of our breedings i feel like are accidental you know like it just happens but
0: uh i mean with your rodents
2: Oh, 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 yeah, oh, oh, it's the best. So we're talking rodents, yeah. I'm like snakes. I don't know. They're all across. They're all over the place. The <laughs> Wake up! Find over... a whole
0: bunch of lineatus and.
2: Uh, oh, oh, I mean that's how it was. You know, we we got seven by lineatus in uh, in February 2020, and we're like, cool. And then October 2020, we got 11 from the same bilineatus, which is the two line forest pit viper. Um, for everybody who's like, what is bilineatus? The so two line forest pit viper from Suriname and Peru. There's a subspecies there, uh, both rocks, bilineatus smargandina or smargandinus. So I'm not sure what, what the, one of those two, because you got Ophriacus smargandinus. There's, there's all kinds of stuff, but like the the. Those, the two-line forest pit from Peru, the, uh, the Smargandina, um, those are amazing. If anybody's re- listening to this, like Google or Justin or one of you guys, uh, uh, or Justin or Phil, one of you guys, one of you two guys, one of you guys uh, pull up images for both ROPs. It might be under both, both Rheopsis by Linneotis smargandina and images google images there's a picture it's like a speckly like blue and some yellow and it's just like it's insane because the regular bilineatus uh usually used to be both both rheopsis bilineata um you know the, from Suriname and uh guyana that traditional looking bilineata but the smargandina is like looks like a kaleidoscope it's a beautiful snake and I've not seen one in collections in the U S or Europe. I haven't really, I'm maybe somebody's posted them somewhere, but I was actually pretty shocked for such a beautiful snake. How many other beautiful snakes have managed to find their way around the world that this one, you know, hasn't so much because, you know, I don't know if it's something with Peru and, and importation or collection or Mm -hmm. whatnot. and, And it was just one of those things that was like so much red tape that it couldn't come over kind of thing. I don't know, but it's an awesome snake for sure but yeah anyway yeah uh, the october 11 babies and the you know i'm gonna go by both bilineata because i don't necessarily agree with the taxonomy change to both robs because mm-hmm. like i probably said on the last few shows because i'm still fired up about it, it doesn't is, make any sense yeah both robs are large lar- well you know some of them could be a little bit smaller but we'll just say larger terrestrial lance heads without a prehensile tail where both Rheopsis are laterally compressed, uh, prehensile-tailed, arboreal, very slender. Like uh, Taniata, both Rheopsis Taniata or now both Rops taniatus, is You know, that, that animal's got a body type like a cook's tree boa. You know, like that's not Yeah, they rops. are very,
0: very uh, corallus esque
2: They're ropey. They're ropey. They might be like four, four feet long and they're just like ropey, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, you know a big old Tercio Palo Bothrops asper Bothrops Mugini, the Brazilian Lancehead. that's a that's a chunky Lancehead. that's a Bothrops you know <laughs> uh, Tercio Palo is a Bothrops uh, uh, two two line forest pit viper I don't know if I you know I mean t- taxonomically speaking it is Bothrops we got to say that now you know just like everybody says Condra and they're like it's Morelia now but you're just like yeah but Condra sounds better just like who, who even cares about what it really is? Like, we're just going to, mm-hmm. I'll call it that no matter what. And everybody just knows what you're talking about still, because you're like, yeah, it's a chondro. Like, yeah, okay, t- taxonomically speaking, it's Morelia now. But, hey, in a little while, it might not be Morelia anymore. They might decide, hey, we're going to just, like, shift gears over here, like Boleans and, and, you know, and Amethystines rhino and all rats, that stuff. Yeah.
0: Why are rhino rats going them around?
2: Should we should we uh should we should we talk about what's going on here before everybody yeah, man. Gets, gets bored and, and tunes out? I I don't I'm not so much like I'm just saying that because I know that I have to. You know, it's like I got the gun to my <laughs> head here by, P, by 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 Pia and Nick Gordon and all all those guys. Like, if I if I don't say some stuff and I go few hours talking about rats and, and 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 Big Al and Tundra, I'm gonna get in trouble. So I should talk about what's going on here in August a little bit. Do you do you have a lineup of questions, Jess, or some some already pre stuff that you want to say before I start yapping? Uh,
0: no. I mean, just I, it's, I think I need to look at what episode it was we had you and P on the first time because it's been a hot minute
2: it has been a hot miracle. so
0: I know a lot's changed I know you guys have, have done a lot since um, so I guess within the last year or so what's what's been going on
2: yeah I mean god it's so high pace around here and, um, and yeah things are just constantly progressing and it's like well I, I think I think the, was the last time that we were on for 2019 Carpet Fest I was think
0: the- so I'm, yeah I'm, I'm looking through the archives right now
1: yeah, because two thousand. W- w- which carpet fest was it that was actually in twenty twenty, the February yeah. of twenty twenty?
0: That was the last Not one
2: we got to enjoy. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. I thought twenty nineteen was it. No, we Wait, got one it? in we we got no, we got one in twenty twenty, and the COVID thing happened like right, right. around March. Yeah. Like yeah, we we yeah. got yeah. February. Right. We were right before. You know, it went mainstream. I'm sure it was going on for a minute, right? Because then by by the by March it was mainstream and everybody was, you know, losing their minds and stuff. Rightfully so, but you know. Yeah. But yeah, so it's been a minute. Um, there's a lot to catch up on, but for anybody that's just tuning in that may may not
0: know why um,
2: maybe a lot of people do, maybe they don't. But uh (laughs) it doesn't end. Yeah, it doesn't end. There's, I'm, I'm pretty verbose. I, I talk a lot. I get off topic. I, you know, no, I'm I, talking about the
0: list like I'm scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and still haven't hit it yet.
2: Right, so, yeah, no, you, you, but you guys are consistent, man. I will, I will, I will tip my hat to the consistency there, you know, and, and Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre at NPR, mm-hmm. you know, shameless plug on those guys. Um, you know, the consistency just showing up every time, you know, because you know, the, that there's times where I'm sure all of you guys are like, I don't want to do that. I'm not feeling to do it. Like, you know, but you just, you press on and, and you do it. And, um, you know, showing up and, you know, giving, giving good uh, information and bringing people on that, that could give good information and something for, for us uh, average Joes that are, that are cleaning rats in the rat barn all day long to listen to, you know, for, for 12 hours a day just go back in those archives and stuff. And, yeah, it was um, 2
0: years ago that y'all were on. That was episode 36. It's almost 100 episodes Episode ago.
2: 36.
1: Wow. And Cody, I mean this in the most respectful way possible. You are anything but the average Joe sir. Well, thanks.
2: Thanks. I appreciate And
1: uh, we have a
2: <laughs> thanks pitch.
1: <laughs> we have a we have a question from our good friend Scott Iper across the Pacific Pond. He wants to know uh, in a in a brief, I'll say a brief touch because I know that all three of us could talk about this for six hours. But how often has Nido been found in a lapids?
2: Man, that is definitely a Pia question, not a Cody question. Um, okay,
1: we'll, we'll we'll come back to that when when she's yeah. Uh, available.
2: Yeah. And oh uh, well, another thing I wanted I want to say to Scott. Hey. I got your message on um, what you sent me and I will respond to you. I have not been intentionally ignoring you. I read the message. I will get back to you. Um, I'm not going to say anything because it's a surprise. So I'm going to leave a cliffhanging teaser for everybody out there for the future for Scott. but uh, but yeah, no. I'll message you. We'll call. I'll call you. I'll call you through your messenger because you know what, with technology these days we could do that. I could call my good old buddy in on Australia. Right. And not and not be charged for it because I learned that lesson with uh, Ketzel Dreyer of uh, Reptilandia. Now now um, building the the, the Reptilandia, um, reptile lagoon there in Texas with, with Ari, you know, working with 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 Ketzel. Uh, you know, I uh, he called me or, or Ketzel messaged me. We were talking through Messenger. I don't know why I we just didn't talk through Messenger, but but he actually called me from whatever number in Costa Rica and I picked up the phone and talked to him for like 30 minutes and then I was really excited and was telling Pia that I talked to Ketzel on the phone it was the first time we had talked and you know just just knowing what Ketzel has done and what he's grown over the years in Costa Rica at Reptilandia. I was just so pumped to talk to him and just like that, he was excited to talk to me and uh like so I wasn't thinking about how much that cell phone bill was going to cost and i think it was like a 100 bucks or something for for that phone call and it was something about some emerald tree boas or something something that maybe he had a prolapse snake or something and he was at you know just asking some advice and and um you know i talked with pia and you know we we got gave him the advice he was looking for but uh he was like he, he could have done that a different way i think uh
1: <laughs> yeah i mean 100 bucks you got off easy
2: yeah, I think so. I thought it was a good deal, man. Like you know, imagine if you were at like a Crockfest or something, and you know, you got a you know, a, a 30-minute phone call for a hundred bucks from Quetzal. Yeah, you'd feel like that wasn't a bad deal. Like, yeah, I'd do it. Yeah, when you I'm, look at it that way. Yeah, I'm not except for the phone company got it instead of some conservation thing. But uh, (laughs) it's like, but, uh, but yeah, so I don't know about Nidovirus and, 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 um, and, osteolapids, but I I have talked to a couple vets that we're friends with um, in Australia and uh, maybe they have seen, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but we talked about it, but, but a lot of those, you know, professional reptile veterinarians are like, the herpetologist in regards that they also have a love for beer and alcohol too so like when you're hanging out with them, you're usually throwing back a few so sometimes it's kind of hard to remember that kind of sciencey stuff but anyway
1: so are we gonna uh do we want to segue into talking about the i don't want to say this wrong but w-r-a-p-s or raps
0: Yes, we were going to talk about that briefly because I think we're trying to plan an episode with Wyman and some of the other folks involved to really talk about that more in depth. But I know like P had mentioned, just sort of briefly uh, sort of going over it and the Cloud Forest Alliance.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're a part of the founding members of RAPS, which is Um, the World Reptile Amphibian Preservation Society, Um, and it's kind of an invisible arc model of um, a group of professionals of all kinds getting together and kind of uh, working collectively with different species, making, you know, making sure, like, if there's a particular species somebody's really good with working with, like, for, for example, we work with some cloud forests, palm vipers, and, um, you know, there's only so many facilities working with that, and it kind of takes a special, like, skill set and husbandry uh, regimen to keep those animals long-term successfully. So these are animals that we work with and really, really enjoy. So that's kind of, you know, something where we can keep good genetic um You know, records of what we've got, keep animals going, um, share them with other facilities and people um, that are working with those exact same animals and diversifying bloodlines and kind of doing it how uh, AZAZs do with uh, um, SSP, which is the species survival plan. Like each zoo works with certain species in those survival plans and they've got different, um, you know, statuses of, um, you know, conservation interests or effort and stuff, and, um, you know, how many of those animals are kept in what zoos, and they kind of work collectively to make sure that they have the best genetic stuff, even if these animals, um, you know, never see the wild, um, that they, they keep track of, I think when you when you become an SS in the, in the AZA Zoo Association, Zoos and Aquariums, when you become an SSP um, or, or you get an animal under an SSP, and you're a coordinator or a stud book keeper. You know, there's there's stud book keepers, coordinators, and they uh, the AZA will will send keepers to a school where they they learn about um, uh, record keeping programs that you know where they can keep uh, track of bloodlines. You know, for a hundred years out on different animals and stuff. And and I, I haven't attended one of those, but a few of my uh, you know, friends and colleagues uh, from the alligator farm and different zoos have become stud book keepers and they have done those courses where they like extensively, you know, teach them how to really keep the diverse, you know, keep everything diverse and, and um, you know, how to bring in new animals to the system, unrelated animals and keep track of those and whatnot. And, you know, AZA, like that's one of the reasons, AZA, you know, whether, whether you love them or you hate them, depending on whether you work for a zoo, you don't, you're a private sector person that thinks the AZA is just elitist and, you know, full of themselves and private people do it better, uh, you know, or or whatever, you know, it's like, there's there's so many opinions there. And there are AZA zookeepers that uh, are not a fan of AZA policy, but they just happen to work at an AZA zoo and that's their job. And it's like, just like anything in a job, maybe you don't agree with some of the things, but overall, like the, that's geared toward the right thing and you know maybe like there's always room for improvement so i mean they're, they're like nick nick gordon who uh is uh a founding member of the Abronia alliance um which is a, con- a conservation initiative that's geared towards abroni lizards and mexican aboriginal alligator everybody i think knows nick gordon at this point uh, you know but his professional day job is he, he works at toledo zoo and he's one of the lead keepers there and he does, you know, I mean, he's a, he, he's a professional AZA zookeeper. He's one of the best zookeepers that I've met. I've never even seen him in his environment. We've still got to go up to Toledo and, and check out his, everything he's doing. But, you know, Nick has come down a few times. We've, we've, we've gone up there, you know, and, and, and Forrest, uh, you know, my, my, I think everybody knows who Forrest Standing is at this point. And Forrest, uh, Forrest and Nick, uh, built the relationship and, um, and uh, Forrest put uh, Nick and, and, and I in touch. We uh, shared phone calls over the phone, uh, you know. Uh, and then uh, after Forrest passed, when we went up uh, with Desiree and Stephen, um, you know, we uh, that's when we met Nick in person for the first time. And really hit it off, you know, because he's got the, you know, he's got, he's got both. He's got the private sector interest and he's got the A Z A zoo polishing, you know, and everything. So you're just mm-hmm. a really well well rounded keeper. And you know similar to me where, you know, it's like obviously everybody gets their, their start in the private sector and then, you know, you maybe, maybe push you or one of the, the few that are lucky enough to be able to make a living doing that. However you do it, whether you're a breeder, you get into the zoo field, you you know, just making a living doing like regardless of what you do with with, with the animal field, it's not an easy living if you do it full-time if you're a full-time zookeeper you're committing a lot you know a lot of the times these zoos even well paying zoos don't pay as well as you know uh a grown-up person's day job and so you're like you're sacrificing a you know generally a pretty good live, you know or a, a lot of potential income in another career to work professionally in a zoo or something even as a you know curator or director in some of these zoos they're they're not making it as much as a director in some big wig corporation or something, you know, like it's still a pretty modest living, but they love what they do. So that's the trade off. And, you know, we're like, I started in the private sector. I was, you know, I don't have a degree, but I was lucky enough to get in with Carl Barton at Medtox and Venom laboratories and the reptile discovery center when I moved to Florida. And, uh, you know, pretty much in 2009, just kind of got my foot in professionally, uh, with, uh, with Carl, and then which led to the uh, me getting uh, hired on at Saint Augustine Alligator Farm, and spent five years there, and just like some of the best times and experience of my life working with every species of crocodilian, and uh, just being around like the top crocodilian professionals in the world, like uh, you know, Dr. Ken Lead and Matt Shirley, who has uh, separated out the, the Nile crocs into Eastern Nile crocs and Western Nile crocs, and working on separating out the there was one west african dwarf crocodile species and now you know they're working on three because they're genetically different you know everything like as as more technology same with the bilineata and, and all that other stuff you know it's like you know the more technology that's out there and, and i mean like good or bad you know if you're doing dna and you're doing this stuff and these things may look you know it's like nick mutton talking about water pythons how the two different Clads and water pythons are so drastically unrelated and one's more related to this than that the other water python because of you know whatever separation and the you know and the gene pool there and it's like so that stuff is there so we're like like i was very lucky to be able to uh these guys to take me under the wing and I, i you know i'm not trying to name drop or anything like that but i mean it's true it's like i was very lucky um and uh and getting in with carl and and Uh, uh, having dinner with the curator of reptiles at the time, Kevin Tarragosa, where, you know, he was saying that there was a reptile keeper position open at the farm and the farm had a good relationship with Carl. Carl wrote me this uh, awesome recommendation letter, like, you know, not because, not because he had to, you know, (laughs) because he wanted to. And I also earned it. And, you know, he wanted to see me, you know, grow. And that was my goal all along as a little kid, um, you know, is, is to get into the zoo field. And I was able to get into the farm and work with all this, you know, it's like, there's, there's only a handful of places you can get really good crop experience. And I was really, really, really fortunate to get in at the farm, because if I wasn't at the farm, I would, I would not be a quarter of the crocodilian keeper that I am. And, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to brag on myself or anything like that. But it's like, you know the farm has been open for over 125 years and and, and polishing those techniques with crocodilians from capture and science and and uh, husbandry and veterinary uh visits and and all that stuff and it's like in in the five years that i was there i was just drinking out of the fire hydrant of knowledge from the farm with with everything that you know like just uh, jim darlington who's now the current curator of reptiles there and you know, I always jokingly say that I'm the son he never wanted because he's got two daughters. And <laughs> you know, and and he he was he was so incredibly nice to me when I had my interview. It was raining. He went out of his way to go get an umbrella to, to for me to walk around the farm and stuff. And just super honest and real. And uh, you know, but uh, yeah, but I'd also uh, be a pain in his ass like a kid. So um, so that's why I say that I'm always like Jim. I'm like the son he never wanted, but uh, you know, so he's the current curator now, and, I, and Jim actually married P and I at Maximo's platform, which is a you know, giant saltwater crocodile that are, you know, superstar, and it was just, like, so cool, but, you know, because of being at the farm, you know, it's, like, a premier crocodilian facility, like, all the top researchers, like, Matt Shirley and Kent Leed, who's at the University of uh, Florida, and, you know, he's, like, the grand poobah of crocodilian research, you know, author on so many papers, written books, like, you know, and, and these are people that we are friends with now. And I would say, you know, like when, when like we're hanging out with everybody, it's like, you know, a bunch of people that I feel like I don't belong in the room with, but uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to call friends and it's, you know, it's led to so many things and, you know, and, and, and growing, you know, going on to found our own um, zoological facility where we're permitted for all the crocodilians uh, out here, and, um, you know, not only are we permitted, but I, I was blessed to get all of that training from the farm where, you know, I can confidently say that we can grow our crocodilian collection, help zoos out, work on conservation initiatives with with big, uh, with big crocodilians and stuff and train the next generation of, of keepers and herpetologists and stuff and, and know that you know, there's there's no cowboy techniques here. This is this isn't you know backwoods stuff. This is professional AZA stuff. That when I was in, you know when I was learning crocodilians before the farm, I was an idiot, and I'd still be an idiot if I wasn't if I didn't go to the farm. You know, so I, I felt like that really shaped me, and crocodilians have been have become uh, you know something that we are really focusing heavy on. And, uh, and growing now, we just started uh, building um, outdoor enclosures for large animals, hence, you know, the two alligators that, that we just got from, from the nuisance trappers. And um, I, I just feel, you know, as we grow this, that it's it's going to grow the right way and the animals are going to be well cared for. When We have to move, you know, 12-foot alligators, like, we're going to keep the animals as safe as we can the people that we say as safe as they can and and if it wasn't for the farm and everybody there uh lauren cashman uh well it's not lauren cashman anymore it's lauren cashman we she's married to my good friend blake who also worked at the farm and now is a as a police officer there but yeah she worked her way up to assistant curator we've been friends the last 10 years and uh you know lauren has uh you know taught me a lot too we've taught kind of each other a lot because we uh you know we have strong strong spots in different areas and stuff so it's like you know to get off on that long way to tangent because that's what i'm known for um you know di- dialing back into raps and um you know it's a, it's a hell of
1: a segue hell of a segue
2: it's, it's a hell of a segue but it, it gives you kind of the idea of like you know, how the, how the AZA really affected me and all the, you know, like um, j- just how, how non elite, you know, the, the, a- the alligator farm is a privately owned facility, um, but is AZA accredited. So it's still in the same pit. It's been in the same family since 1937. The Drisdale family owns the alligator farm. And um, like these, uh, um, Oh god! I, I just uh, completely lost my train of thought there, on, on the segue. But uh, but oh yeah, no. Like, no you're, you, sa- you're
1: you saying how how Raps is not just some you know BS organization. It's right. it's founded and started by legitimate professionals who come from legitimate backgrounds, and it's a collaborative effort between the science community and the herpeter herpetoculture community to better preserve and conserve these particular unique species.
2: That's a that's a, that, yeah. that that's a great way to say it, Phil. That was that was a fifteen-second way to say that long-winded thing that turned into a story. But that's a hundred percent true because if you know, like, if I if I didn't get into the you know the farm helped like the farm gave me a chance. I was I was just some you know private sector kid that had a fascination for venomous reptiles and and. Uh, And crocodilians, but at that time, not 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 like I do now. Like after after being at the farm, I mean the farm was just like, you know, now it's it's just a a part of of me at this point. But like, you know, my interest in the private sector was a professional one. Now I mean like for anybody who knows my story, I'm just gonna plug it really quick. I grew up in Las Vegas where I couldn't have uh, exotic venice. If you wanted to pick up a hooker or go gamble or something, you know, There are those things can be legal in Vegas. But if you're a, a person who loves venomous reptiles, uh, you know, that's not the place that, you can keep natives, but you can't keep exotics. And I was, um, I, I had uh, venomous reptiles. in My first my first uh, venomous snake, I was 11 years old and it was a Panamint speckled rattlesnake. And they're now Panamint rattlesnakes. They're not in the Mitchell group anymore, but at that time it was speckled rattlesnake. And uh, went from natives to learning about king snake and fauna and meeting people and trading and, and all that stuff. And um, like, you know, it uh, you know, got a little out of hand. My first exotic venomous, I think it was, it, I, well, I know it was white-lipped vipers. It was a pair of white-lipped vipers. It was like the, the best thing that I ever saw in my life. I couldn't even believe that I had these things. I think I was like 13 or 14 years old when I figured out a way how to, you know, have those things shipped to me through not not legal methods right i'm not going to get into it but these were the days before facebook or myspace or anything so like it would be hard pressed to to get away with it for too long there but at that time i don't think anybody cared and you know, I, I know the whole thing with the cobra escape, you know, and and, the, and the, the green mama bite and how bad that made everybody look and making the news and, and all of that. It, it's bad. You know, I was that asshole in, in 2006, 2007. I was that asshole that everybody hated, you know, like Al Kretz hated me. But now Al Kretz is cool with me because I stuck with it long enough. I learned my lesson. I moved, moved to Florida, got my permits, got into the zoo, AZA Zoo world and, you know, like. Uh, do you, you want to learn from the guy that's never made any mistakes or do you want to, you know, and learn from them? Or do you want to learn from the guy that like makes a mistake like every 10 minutes, but learns from it and starts making new mistakes and can explain why, you know, doing dumb things is dumb and can hurt people that are trying to not do dumb things. And, you know, like, but at that time, you know, I wasn't doing it for cloud or anything. I really legitimately was interested in these animals, lived in Vegas as a kid and, you know, was able to acquire these snakes and, like, uh, you know, it ended up not working out. I was actually trying to get zoo jobs, get, you know, putting out resumes and stuff just because I wasn't planning to do it underground forever. I wanted to get out there and, and pursue something professional. And, uh, you know, I was kind of practicing on my own. Right. But it was illegal. So it doesn't count. But it does because I wouldn't take anything back Because I learned a lot from it. I mean, it really sucked. It sucked. It sucked on um, and and how I got caught somebody else. Got caught doing something they they shouldn't have been doing, and because I was doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing, they got popped. officially U.S. Fish and Wildlife, because these were LASIAC act things, but they, turned, you know, they dropped them to misdemeanors, not felonies, but they could have been felonies. I was looking at seven hundred fifty thousand dollars in fines, two hundred fifty thousand dollars per count. There's three counts LASIAC, act, and up to five years in prison per count. Um, so you're looking at fifteen years and 750000 in fines if they if they got you with the maximum penalty of the Act, uh, But I got the minimum, which was still a, a lovely $10,000 fine, um, 200 hours of community service, six months house arrest, and five years of not being able to have a venomous reptile in my private collection until um, I was off probation, unless I was employed working with them professionally. And that was the kick. And Fish and Wildlife put that in there. They said he can't work with them if he does professionally so they kind of like and fish and wildlife they were pretty cool to me i know a lot of people be like you know you know fuck fish and wildlife but like i i, I broke a law you know I, I broke a law i wasn't a criminal but i broke a law and you know these guys have their jobs and they have to you know like a lot of these laws are put there because people were assholes and did things that were wrong and and it had become a problem and some of the stuff is added and it's unjustified now it's getting out of control with all the bands and stuff everywhere and you know, like reptile keepers, I think as a whole are much, much, much more professional now than they've ever been before. And all the stuff that's happened that all these established invasive species that are in Florida happened a long time ago and where people were more assholes than they are today. But that's kind of hard to say because there's a lot of assholes today too. Um, but uh, you know, it's like, like you see us arc, you see everybody, your podcast, all these other podcasts, like the people that are really into this, they're really into this and, and they don't want their animals out and they don't they're not releasing stuff, they're not the problem. And you know, it, we constantly have to prove our worth to the public, just like I did. You know, I was the asshole that, that made the review journal. If people wanna are bored and want to Google my name, you'll find some professional things about me and you'll find some not so professional things. You'll still find my review journal article from back then on the 21 year old man, you know, charged with the effort to sell deadly reptiles, you know, and blowing it all up, sound a lot scarier than it is. And then you'll see, you know, professional senior keeper at St. Augustine Alligator Farm. Cause those guys gave me a chance to even know, like I would, you know, do you want to talk about embarrassing and humbling and character building? Imagine like applying for an AZA zoo, you're on probation for, for federal ACE act violations and you have the interview and I'm not trying to make the alligator form look bad because they hired me. But uh, you know, I t- it just says a lot about how they were looking into my character not necessarily, you know, that I broke a law and, you know, I interviewed everybody for everything from, from the director, the curator, and they, they knew ahead of time. And uh, ironically, when they did the background check on me, I came up clean because it was in Vegas that it happened and not in Florida. So, if I wanted to, if I knew better, I would, could have just not said anything and they went to known. But I, I always feel like I'd rather be turned down with integrity than lie and then be like outed as a liar and stuff. So, it's like, if I don't get the job because that you guys just can't do that, that's, I get it, you know? And, um, you know, but they hearing the story and all that, and it's like, hey, you, you lived in a state that you couldn't have them. You're a, you're a kid keeping these things growing up into, you know, an adult. And you know, and I was, I was, I was really responsible, man. Like I, I, I would have passed a venomous inspection in Florida and Vegas, a hundred percent, a hundred percent would have of the cage requirements, labeling protocols, everything would have hundred percent passed. And um, I actually am now friends with uh, Ian Riccio, who's the curator, of LA Zoo. He was the, he was one of the zoo guys that came down to assist Fish and Wildlife in the confiscation. I wasn't there, you know, I got the phone call from my parents saying that Fish and Wildlife had raided the house, you know, imagine getting that phone call to your friends after spending the night, you know, like, not good, it was, a, it was a bad few years, but, you know, I hadn't lost sight of why I was into these animals, I was into these animals because I love these animals, it wasn't for the attention that they brought me, and, and they brought me negative attention at first, and I had to continuously prove that I was in it for these animals, and not not for attention or not whatever. And, um, you know, I fought on getting into social media until we branched off to do our own thing where I, I was told that it would be a good thing for, uh, you know, for me. And I think it's, it's taken a few years off my life since I've gone on social <laughs> media, but, uh, you know, it's like it it sucked, man, you know, and it—and it's a part of my past. And I, and I you know, I, I have to constantly bring it up because I feel like we're doing a lot of good stuff. But, you know, because that that article is still up there, somebody's going to look up online and they're going to say, hey, look, this guy that's opening this conservation facility. He's just, you know, he was a, you know, piece of shit, rascal. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah, I mean. I screwed up, but, uh, you know, I, every day I try to be better and, and, uh, you know, now, now I'm permitted for some of the hardest stuff to get permitted for, because I put in, in the legitimate work and I was, I was lucky and given some chances by, by all the awesome people at the farm, Kevin, Jim, but Kevin, you know, Torgoso, he's at the Bronx too now, and this is still a, an amazing friend. And, um, we, we actually just sent the, the Bronx zoo, um, some, uh, both reicas are for yellow blotch palm vipers that we, we captive mm-hmm. red here, you know, like legitimate captive bred um, uh, animals. And you, you, you've seen the video Justin. that we have the video of her, um, giving birth, um, uh, and, uh, well, not giving birth, but us finding it that she gave birth and, uh, and collecting the babies and setting them up. And, uh, the, the, those are, uh, Uh, mexican and Guatemalan cloud forest species and one of the the animals that we uh have some serious interest in in the bronx is working with the group too so uh we just sent five out to the bronx zoo and you know so so going from you know being a quote-unquote piece of shit illegally keeping venomous animals privately in in vegas which gave me my experience to get in the zoo field i mean like a little bit but a lot of the Times zoos don't want to hire somebody with their own experience because they they come with their own bad habits and it's easier
0: to work with a clean slate.
2: It is, and we do Mm hear like you know there are people that that come in to to intern and volunteer that that have a serious interest but no experience, but they have a good attitude and they're willing to learn. Then I'll take that over a college degree or reptile experience or anything. If you if you're a clean slate and you are just a good attitude and you you are capable of doing it and you're interested and you know you can take constructive criticism and you could you're a team player and stuff i don't i don't care if you have a formal piece of paper and got yourself you know a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars in debt you know that if you don't have any debt and you don't have a degree but you're smart and you're good and you're a good person i'm gonna look at that and, and that's what the alligator farm looked at, at with me you know or, or you know at least the reptile department and and, and the director is that you know he doesn't have, yeah I, I didn't have a lot going for me you guys you know like i I didn't have a degree, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, I had uh, Lacey Act violations it, <laughs> like it was, uh, already I'm a zoo's nightmare. Like, you know, I was that, <laughs> I was the, I was the, I was the guy they talked, I was the reason why the zoo field hates the private sector. Just like the kid with the green Mamba and the Cobra escape, you know, he's the reason there's probably a divide We're, we're professional facilities that have these professional protocols and regimen and, and I, and stuff. They they steer away from those kind of people because they they carry themselves to a different caliber. And and that's the thing with the Aza people. I mean, when you when you hang out with Nick Gordon, you know he has got private interest in reptiles. But you like at least I can I can tell he's a polished Aza zookeeper because that that's what happens. Yeah, I mean sometimes people get a little too smug and a little too high and mighty. But like you know Nick's not like that. And, but you know, you're talking to them and a lot of these other AZA people I talked to, I'm just like, man, their knowledge is deep in this. It's, yeah, and you're just like, I'm always impressed with the, like most of the maybe not all, but like with lights like, say the vast majority of the professional zookeepers that I know, I'm like, I'm always blown away. And, um, you know, but that interest had to start from somewhere in the private sector and with Raps it's like, it incorporates everything and trying to, you know, be, do those professional like SSP style things and um and keeping track of bloodlines and stuff and private sector people that carry themselves above all the rest right like there are there are there are um well uh, professionals of all kinds are in this group but you know just because you, you you shouldn't be shunned if you're private if you're talented and you have a serious sincere interest and in, the animals and conservation and stuff so it's like there's and 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 i'm i'm just kind of winging it right now based off the stuff that you know pia has told me because she has been you know um uh, fundamental and uh, showing up for these meetings and being a part of that uh board of directors there and uh, and representing us and i'm just kind of like the director of operations i'm just making sure you know we keep our heads above water and things Things smooth or things sail as smooth as they can, and Pia just you know lets me know what I need to know. But but basically you know from from what she's told me, uh, you know the, the group of people on there is is a, a really good group of people with like-minded interests, with different skills, and uh, you know trying to incorporate all of those, and uh, you know place you know find animals and, uh, that people are interested. And, and and um you know place place you know if they're if they're they're capable with uh you know those animals they get placed there like uh, uh one of the, one of the folks on the board um put us in and uh uh well saw a listserv on some um some critically endangered uh european vipers that was uh being surplus at one of these zoos and let us know about it and we did put us in touch with the curator and and um you know and i and i was good friends with the former curator that who had just retired and um you know that was you know what one of one of the founding men members of RAPS was able to kind of facilitate that find those animals and and put them in the incapable hands who's working with those those animals and you know just keeping good genetic track of stuff and you know, like I said, everybody likes to say, oh, you know, reintroduction programs and stuff. And really, like, the sad truth is that there's got to be habitat to reintroduce a lot of these animals yeah. into. <laughs> kind of
0: wheels if it's not.
2: It's really not, you know, because we, like, we could all breed stuff, right? Like, different, different people have different skill sets, different interests. They're, they're, they're more, you know, in tune with certain species. And, you know, we could breed this stuff. But, like, after that, can we put, you know, it's like, it's like Panamanian golden frogs. It's like the you know, zoos have a good genetic record of all the different Panama golden frogs and in, in captivity in zoos um, and different bloodlines where they can, they could populate the wild. Um, but uh, like the chytrid fungus problem, it's like, we well, are going to just release those animals, you know, to die again. So right. you, you got to kind of figure out the chytrid fungus thing first before you can release the frogs. But like, kind of the point of raps and the point of like SSP and stuff like that and in, in professional zoos is to keep those animals around like, the, you know, like how Dave and Tracy Barker talk about in the invisible arc that there are so many like collectively we could do so much more together if zoos work with uh, professional private people um, and really kept track of things and, and did it in a more professional documented way because we all know as reptile keepers, private reptile keepers. I know because I'm there, right? Like I've been there. Yeah. You know, you just we're all people. You know, it's like you, you get in the rhythm of the room, and it, and it's just your stuff. It's your collection. So you're really not. You, you might know this animal is unrelated to this or that, but is it really? Is blood work been done on it? Like, are you really keeping track? Are you doing anything? Are you keeping in contact with other people who are doing it? Or like once like you die, whatever you at your collection just goes. You know somewhere and gets pieced out and and whatever so it's like um it, it, it's important to for, for the ones that are working with animals that really need special attention um for those people to kind of communicate with each other and stuff and you know just like us with breeding the for like those animals that we sent to the zoo are now you know they're like we're very comfortable Like we love the fact that we sent those five animals to a top of the line aza facility Like that's, you know, you know, those animals are just going to be flipped on king snake tomorrow and they're going to be taking, you know, they're going to someone that's going to be able to care for the animal for the lifetime of the animal and they're doing good stuff with it. And like, and and we're, we're that kind of bridge between here at at our, at our facility, we're kind of that bridge, bridge between the private sector and zoos, you know, because I have such a a deep-rooted thing with, with being, you know, growing from the private sector and then getting into the zoo field and, and still being, like, very, very active in both communities, both private and zoo. And, you know, just like Nick, you know, he's professional zoo, but he's very active in, in, in the private sector because of other animals he's interested in, which has led Nick to branch off to doing more for conservation outside of what he's doing in the zoo world because he's, he's just that that go-getter kind of a person that's that wants to do more, has the ability to do more, and I think that uh, there's a lot of that. So I think Rapsley is also you know trying to kind of bring more of that together and stuff too. So based off of everything that I've heard, like I said, I've been in the field a lot, so this is kind of just I'm kind of phone fed this, but so far so good. Everybody's awesome. Sorry if I butchered everything. <laughs>
1: No, but I was, gonna, I was actually going to ask uh, because so many of us have our own way, <clears throat> excuse me, our own way of keeping lineage for line breeding or crossbreeding or whatever it is. Is there a way or a place that normal Joe Schmo like myself can find how, say, the AZA would want the lineage to be written down? Or, or logged or archived? Is there like a uh, I don't want to say a template, but like, are they looking for one specific style that's uniform amongst you know both you know private and the science community?
2: That is such a loaded question, Phil.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough.
2: That is such a loaded question because currently there is the, the Aza does have a system that they use, and it's called ZIMS, and it stands for the Zoological Information Management System, and that's and that's how like when i was at the farm pia can do it cuz she's she's also at disney you know and that's an aza facility you know so you can go on zims and you can type in a certain species or whatever and it will show what zoos that are aza or that are on zims i think there may be our non aza facilities that are on zims as well but don't quote me on that but like okay uh, okay but but they you know like if if i if i, if I typed in like um Orinoco crocodiles and Zims. It would show me what facilities have Orinoco crocodiles, and you know, and the numbers that they have, and which bloodlines of those. And they'll have their ID numbers and stuff. And like, it's all ca- it's all cataloged. So like, other AZA facilities could, you know, if they need a certain animal, they could look on there and they know, hey, LA Zoo might have this animal, uh, and reach out to uh, to Ian Riccio, and you who know, I'll get you know r- roundabout on Ian. Who is now a, now a good friend and was also there to seize my collection in two thousand and six or seven or whatever it is. But we're, uh, wow. we're friends now. Yeah. So yeah. It's, good. We're, yeah. No. No. we'll just talk about it now because we're here. But like, um, we were uh, my my friend Danielle uh, Leopold, who's now De- Danielle Reagan. She's uh, she was a keeper with me at the alligator farm, and she's now um, in in management up at Maryland Zoo and. Um, is, is still a, a really good friend ironically her family lives just like on the property you know not too far down the road from us so when she comes to visit her family you know she comes to visit us but she was at the farm then and we were going to pick up in Riccio uh because they were coming down to pick up a couple of false gharials from us so the, the to miss them uh, a or shalagli however you want to say it and uh we were we were driving back to the alligator farm and I told Danielle previously, I'm like, I think Ian was there when I got busted. And I think he was the, one of the guys that was helping fish and wildlife with the confiscation. And, uh, so she was kind of like being a wingman to, 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 to lead to this conversation for Ian to basically say that he was there to raid my collection. And, uh, so she, and it wasn't really tactful either. It was like, so have you gone any, have you ever gone on any good raids, you know, or anything? And, uh, he was nice like, smooth yeah real smooth yeah, it was super smooth and, and he was like he was thinking about it. he was like man you know there's one time this kid in vegas he had like an insane venomous collection and and i'm not just saying that you know but like he said it was very you know it was really professional and and you know, everything was well labeled and everything and you know uh he was like um but yeah you know all everything healthy i did my best uh you know, place all the animals and stuff because they told me they were all euthanized. But I, you know, when, when I go because they probably do, they do that to, you know, make you make you learn a lesson and also not hunt down the zoo that that has your animals. And then you're going to, you know, they, they obviously they want to keep that secret. So, uh, you know, that's what I was told. All my stuff was euthanized once I met Ian when that a lot of it was not i don't know if anything was but he said that he did it and maybe some stuff went to, to their zoo or whatever because i had a collection then that uh zoos were re- i i'm t- I, I promise you any of the zoos that got the animals that i had they did not not like me right like they were probably like that guy's awesome because they got a lot of cool stuff that was really healthy like you know they i, I don't think any one of them was mad at me there, you know, I think probably the private people were the most mad because I'm the one setting the bad example for the private world and the zoo people are just like, yeah, another private asshole, you know? But uh, like, uh, so Ian was like, yeah, you know, it was a nice collection, all this stuff. And he's like, but I never, you know, found out what happened to that kid. And I was like, oh, we're actually driving. We were going to Kevin's, uh, who was the curator at the time. And we were gonna, you know, throw back a few or whatever. And that's when I said, we're gonna go back to Kevin's, throw back a few, whatever. And he was like, no shit, that was you. And I mean, like, he was like, listen, man, no hard. Because he was just there doing a job. Fish while, well, like, hey, this asshole broke the law. We need a zoo professional. Come in, identify these animals and take them, right? Like, and and I could have hated him, right? I did not hate him. He was doing his job. And we're at, like, and now when we see each other at, at the TAG meetings, which is a taxon advisory group meetings, and taxonomy advisory group meetings. It's uh meetings that are held every year for zoological facilities and stuff. And I never stopped going to them. Um, um when i when i stopped being paid to be at a zoological facility and now i'm starting to grow one so like i just have kept those relationships the whole time so i see ian all the time and now we're really cool and i've grown up a lot since then but uh it was it's kind of a fun story oh and here's another fun one for everyone ian runs into me in the hallway at one of the at the hotel Uh, that we were staying at in Miami for the Miami tags years back. And he's just drunk and he's like, grabs my shoulder. He's like, I'm going to come and confiscate your underwear tonight. Like, you know, and I was just like, oh, nice, Ian, you know, but uh, yeah, like, it was. It, it was. Uh, I mean, you. Some people are like, "Oh, that's weird," but I. I thought it was an honor. I was like, "Hey, this guy doesn't hate me," so that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you build a relationship, and, and it's it's paying off in multiple different ways. Yeah. Despite you, despite how it was started, it's blossomed into something good.
2: Yeah, and I think you just gotta be. You, you you gotta learn from your mistakes. If you don't learn from your mistakes, nobody's gonna respect you. You know, you gotta own when you screw up like if if you don't own when you screw up then you just you don't learn anything and everybody just thinks you're a douche but if you own it if you own that you did something and you learn from it I think people at least respect that you own it and even if they don't like you 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 know it's uh and uh and the ones that do like you um become friendships so like I've been really lucky but I I mean I love the zoo field I love it if I was and that's why we're going. I feel like in my journey I have learned enough in and from from all my failures in the private sector to getting into the zoo field and having my share fair share of failures in the zoo field, but not 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 catastrophic failures, you know, like small failures that aren't fatal, you know, just you know, failing forward, Look, learning kind of
1: experiences. Things.
2: Yeah, yeah, failing forward. So and, and and I'm doing that now, starting our own facility, um, but because we have so many uh, professional zoological relationships as well as in the private community, which kind of has turned into a derogatory word over the years, but uh, like it, it shouldn't be because I mean, if if, you, if you're if you not, if you don't have people coming in and you're not public, you're private, you could be your, your private owner, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's like, yeah, it's a, uh, that's why the zoos would say, oh, the private sector, because these, these are people that got in the zoo field that, Uh, You you know, a lot of them, that was their first time ever keeping reptiles and and they've learned the professional way of doing things and they see all the screw ups private people have done because they don't have any accountability, right? Like when you're working for a facility or an institution, you have a ton of accountability. Like, and a lot of these facilities, they don't want you doing dumb stuff. They don't want you being on the internet doing dumb stuff uh, and, and making yourself look like assholes. And uh you know they' and, and if you are you know you're usually getting kicked out because it, you know it's like they carry themselves a different way because you're working for a professional you're not just on your own when you're on your own, you could do whatever you want. when you're working for somebody else, you've got to be accountable and that's and with these dangerous animals, venomous snakes and like crocodilians, Komodo dragons like these are dangerous animals sharks like a lot of this marine life like if people are, playing around people could get hurt or die and when you, when these facilities have insurance policies and all this stuff they have to attend to and all that it's like they cannot have accidents and and so those people have to be as professional as possible but like uh, you know when you're when you're on your own you know it's whatever you want to do it's 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 your the world is your oyster and you know and people develop bad habits i did i developed my own but uh, you know i was open and and coachable so like you know my bad habits can be redirected where some people's bad habits they never learn from them and they never move forward um so it's like uh you know it's uh it, it really it, it um all of our experiences have have led to doing this we're permitted for everything that we want to keep and uh which allows us to work with all these zoological facilities and working with some uh some animals that are of special needs conservation speaking or what have you and um you know for many of the people who are listening to this they may know us from terrestrial and arboreal which was when i was working at the alligator farm um our our side business you know it was uh, terrestrial and arboreal where we worked with a lot of green tree pythons various carpet pythons and what have you and um, unfortunately, we had virus sweep through that collection, which a lot of people are aware of that story. And, and now, because of testing and all of that, you know, a lot of people are able to to really uh, put their finger on the pulse of their collection, you know, disease speaking, and really learn a lot more and become better keepers. And it's also up in the bar for the private sector, like the zoos. Every time an animal comes into a zoo, it doesn't matter if it comes from another AZA zoo that had pre-shipped. Uh, exams by their veterinarians that animal goes into quarantine gets more (laughs) testing from that facility uh, and has to check out before it goes to the main collection they're very regimented because as we know you could bring in a few bad animals and you could ruin decades worth of work and i mean 100 percent. that's what happened i mean like i have failed so much in reptiles it is a miracle and I mean a miracle that I am still doing this because it is, it is hard. It's a hard life and it's a full, it's full of emotional turns and twists and financial stuff. It's expensive. Every part of reptiles is expensive from private, private stuff, just having a, few things to be in a breeder having hundreds or thousands of things and then running a zoological facility where you're you're in charge of so much and all those animals needs are very expensive if you're keeping them right if you're doing testing if you're if you're necrops animals if you're feeding them properly have them in the right cages and uh, you know using the right lights not half-assing it like it's it's expensive to do it right and it sucks and there's a lot you know i mean you got i gotta constantly remind myself all the time you know why I, I love these animals in this field because some of the people really suck in this field and some of the people are really awesome in this field and you know like just when i think everybody sucks i get to meet somebody awesome that rejuvenates me to to keep going or getting involved in stuff that's better for everybody as a whole you know but uh it's tough. It's it, It's a tough. It's a tough way to make a living. I mean, like, you know, if you're a zookeeper, you're probably sacrificing um, good pay somewhere else. You know, not to say some of these zookeepers don't make some money, but they're 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 sacrificing to do what they do. And the reason why they probably don't make a lot of money is because everything re- regarding animal care and husbandry is expensive as shit. And like, this is like this is how much we could pay you because. We had to take care of all these animals. It's a expensive to take it. There's a lot of overhead in a zoological park. Reptiles, reptile zoos probably have the least overhead because they're reptiles. But if there's m- mammals and birds and stuff, you know, San Diego Zoo, Disney, you know, all all these, all these like Toledo Zoo, you know, these these zoos, <laughs> they spend some money and they've got a staff and it's like you know, growing our own thing. I've never respected facilities that are actually thriving, like St. Augustine Alligator Farm, that started as a privately run, uh, you know, facility in 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 the in the early 1900s, and now in 2021, going on 2022, they're a thriving Aza, a polished up, accredited zoo that's like, you know they they just hold themselves to a different standard and you know you you go to a lot of other roadside facilities in Florida with with alligators and stuff and you're meeting you're greeted with a bunch of cletuses with with accents and hats and buckwheat hang out and everything and, and you're just like and they kind of just it's like kind of corny and tacky and then you go to the alligator farm and it's just everybody's got you know button-up shirts and very professional looking and you talk to them and you just hear professionalism. They do alligator shows and feeding and stuff, but they don't do any of the hokey wrestling stuff. And yeah, it's, you know, the, it's they, the
1: opposite of cli- it's the opposite of the cliche.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, and the alligator farm used to wrestle and stuff, but they, you know, because back in the day, I'm pretty sure most of the, a lot of the facilities in in, uh, in Florida did, but they thought, you know, it started sending a poor message to, about the animal, and and they were like, we're gonna do, we're gonna turn our, our wrestling shows into Like educational walk around with the alligators, but just throw them some some food, some Missouri pellets, you know, Missouri crocodilian diet, and just like interact with the animals, but in a but in a not flashy, showy way, and and that show is is as successful as any of your you know flashy ones. But when people are watching alligator wrestling shows, they want to see the person that's doing the wrestling get hurt. Like that's that's why you know they're they're not as fascinated by what. There, you know, like at the alligator farm, when they're doing a show, they're people are are focused on the animals primarily because the keeper that's doing a show with the microphone is highlighting animals without wrestling and we're doing anything. And then, you know, sometimes they'll throw them some food or whatever. And people, that's a, when an alligator grabs some, so, you know, a rat from you or whatever. Of course, a dead rat, because uh, that would be that would not be Aza if you were tossing out live rats humanely euthanized rats like and but you know somebody sees that and they're they're just as amazed and they're like they see that how controlled it is and and it's almost a boring show because it's like you know you're not doing anything reckless but you know so many people when i would do those shows and get out you'd have so many people come over and ask all these inquisitive questions there were some stupid ones in there too but uh you know they'd ask these questions where you were just like engaged with them and it was a lot more enjoyable and it sent a better message about the animals but uh you know it's like constantly evolving and and um you know it's uh you know it's a lot it's allowed us to to grow into what we're doing today and and we're um, you know so the the terrestrial and arboreal with us doing uh, private uh you know green tree python breeding and stuff we lost a great deal of that to Donato virus. And, uh, you know, it it just it shows the, um, you know, the severity of, of testing. An- you know, we, we went back on decades of breeding uh, of those animals because we lost one of the best collections in the world of designer green tree pythons. I'm not just saying that. It really was. Like, Forrest and I had built a, We you know, from some of the best condor breeders on earth, we had a collection of animals that was just, Second to none, you know all kinds of greg Maxwell animals, Andrew Kelly animals, Brett mazamine animals, the dreamline which I'm obsessed with, and like you know I mean we lost you know and its, it's and then we learn like how all these Condor people are just like, go every year you know Condra's just died because of RI and it's like no they're all just dying to nido virus. like like every time I've ever You know, now that we've learned with nidoviruses and whenever animals started wheezing and we sent it off, it was it was a positive animal and it died, you know, and then we'd have some that were, were, uh, you know, asymptomatic and would live for a while and then they would die, you know, and it was just like, but then you have healthy animals and animals that we have segregated that are not positive for nidovirus. And those, you know, those animals are hardy as shit like and and because when people are like oh 72 oh don't get them down to like 69 degrees because they're going to catch a ri it's like a healthy chondro i could take that thing probably 55 without you know as long as you have proper basking and stuff like don't just shut off the lights and leave like your brooding corn snakes but like you know if the animal has an adequate setup with right light uv and heat and stuff it's like yeah you can cycle them a little colder if you want to give them a seasonal yeah. change open a window 72 degrees ain't gonna kill a healthy chondro 72 degrees might kill a fucking disease to ask chondro with nidovirus but uh but sometimes they don't we've also seen nidovirus positive animals that were hardy and probably were responsible for killing all the other ones like and it, it's like but zoos the whole time you know and zoos still get disease and stuff right like even when you do all these tests sometimes stuff slips through the cracks or it was a false negative or whatever like you know zoos aren't exempt from disease they but they do they do eliminate a lot of problems because of their policies of pre-testing and pre-ship quarantine t- quarantining from zoo to zoo and they are just very diligent about you know eliminating a problem before it goes into a main collection of animals that have been there for 20 plus years or whatever for some of them and you know that's something the private sector can really learn from the zoo world and i think the private sector is now starting to now that these tests are becoming more available and information is traveling and and people are talking about it more and now it's not like i'll tell you any kind of disease that i find in our collection i don't care you know because we're testing and we're well, i do care but, you know, I, I'm not afraid to to say anything because it's like it's a part of it. You're dealing with exotic animals that have species of diseases that have been around as long as they are. So it's not your, you know, it can be your fault. But the the stuff, you know, you didn't get Nidovirus because your temperatures were off. <laughs> like, that's not why Nidovirus came right. into your collection. Right. Like, so you could just be. Uh, you know, just be more diligent. Like, you know, like it's just it, it's always work. And, um, you know, sometimes it just, you know, like but those practices will will no doubt help you out. And because when something comes into the collection, something like crypto where it could hide in there for years, an animal that's not exhibiting signs, animal could be passing that around. And and, uh, you know, it's like you just if you had not done the test when it came in, it's a sleeper in the collection and you might go a long time without any problems and then your animal that you had for 15 years just dropped dead out of nowhere but you didn't need crops so you just thought it was old and you threw it away but actually had something you know maybe you would have learned something from from necropsying it so I, we always suggest you know if you have a collection of any size and you're more than just uh, you know a pet owner having a snake um you know where a lot of those guys probably don't know but if you if you are seriously involved and in whether you're a breeder a zoo person whatever like you know it's it will benefit you and other people to to jump on board with making sure your animals are healthy and you're passing on healthy animals and and eliminating uh not healthy animals if if they have something that's just you know they can't unless you have isolated areas where you can let that animal live out its life if it's asymptomatic away from everything else or you just say i'm okay with that um you know that person has to decide but it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty serious thing but from going from that that the terrestrial and arboreal because we because of that and we all we we have a decently sized venomous collection and while i was working at the zoo you know we were permitted for these animals and we were um we were generating income by breeding uh, when I when I had left the zoo world, because I went from St. Augustine, I took a position at the Phoenix Herpetological Sanctuary. It used to be Phoenix Herpetological Society, but Phoenix Herpetological Sanctuary in Arizona. I resigned after that uh, from from my position there um, after about a year. And then and I moved back to Florida. And PA got a job at Disney. And that's when we got the Green Tree Python collection from a friend. Bought a big Green Tree Python collection and uh, moved it here. From, from where they were and every all these chondros and, and, and carpets and everything because we just moved back from from Arizona and everything was in the same room. The new chondro collection came in and our carpet pythons and green trees that we had for years previous were all in the same room for a little bit. And we just started dropping, everything started dropping. All the morelia just started dropping like flies. And, uh, you know, our venomous stuff, we've had, we, we finally learned after necropsying everything, what it was, and virus and kind of starting putting two to two together, seeing all these chondros dying of respiratory disease, and like, you know, just like uh, standard RI symptoms, everybody says, and then the snakes just die, and we're necropsying every single one, and sending all the tests to the appropriate labs, and finally, we, we figure out, this is what we're working with. And then I just me keeping these animals for years and hearing everybody tell the stories of, of dying from RI. I'm just like, man, I just, all these things were dying from Nido virus. And it's like, I think this is a lot more widespread than people think. And everybody tried to put blame on certain people, but then like everybody tests every, you know, everybody's testing now. And every, like, there's a lot, there's a lot of positives everywhere, you know? So it's kind of like everybody's to blame, you know, but now that we're, now that we're learning about testing and all that and proper quarantine people can now request tests from the seller or or purchase their own and test for nidovirus and send it to the lab you know and and then consult with their veterinarian because it's not a a cure-all be-all you know it's like you pop a positive and then pia hates that she's gonna be like her and daniel are over there just like looking at me probably tapping the watch and pia hates he hates what people say oh i got a snake pop positive for nida virus i don't know pet peeve or her because <laughs> she's like because she's like a, a snake doesn't just pop positive like it got it from somewhere you know it's like poof but popped positive i said that the other day and she's like i hate that i'm like you hate that i said it sounds good it's got some twang to it but she doesn't like it so now whatever i can't take it back now um uh, but like you know people can test and uh you know, it, it makes everybody have some accountability. And now it becomes this the normal, you know, it's like, you it, like, like I said, in past interviews, like, I won't buy a chondro, unless it has negative, uh, be- or to have an upfront conversation with the seller, because a lot of time, I don't want people handling the snakes, like, I know, I'm gonna handle them correctly, because like, I'm, I'm really smooth with grabbing cream trees behind the head and not being too hard and holding them the right way and like stretching out their body. So they're not winding up and letting Pia pop open the mouth and swab the coena, which is the upper, not the cloaca. That's the lower end. The coena is that depression in the upper roof of the mouth that the glottis fits into. So when they're breathing and they take in all that gross, uh, mucousy stuff up there and they're gaping with their mouth up, and their cowana is filled with bullshit and you have to you have to blast that stuff out for them to breathe again um but that's where you get the best sample swab and that thing and um you know so so i, I just feel very comfortable with you know because i'm gonna get them and i'm gonna like i'm not jumpy with hooks and stuff trying to do a green tree because with venomous stuff it's like i know I can't make mistakes. With a Green Street Python, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to kind of tai chi it a little bit until I get a, uh, the right position where I can just smoothly grab. Them. I don't just like slam them and pin them. I don't care if they bite me. If they want to bite me, I'm not afraid of that. Like, I'm not trying to be badass. It's not a giant reticulated python or scrub. The chondro can bite me. Like, I now I won't, I will not do it with an emerald. The big emerald is a different story, but I'll take a bite from a chondro, you know, and I might rethink about it if it's a really big chondro, but. But I've uh, I got a pretty decent track record of not getting bit by Condros doing that. And I know I'm not going to hurt him in the grab because I would be afraid if somebody else that doesn't. Maybe they're not as smooth with a restraint because P and I, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, got really good at doing this. You know, so we're, I'm just very, we we work very well as a team and, and I, we don't even have to say anything to each other when, we, when I grab the snake, flip it over, she does the swabbing and everything and just put it away and it's just very smooth. And, you know, if the condor wants to bite me, I, I probably earned that. So like, but it doesn't happen pretty often, but like, if I was going to get something from somebody else, I would definitely, um, you know, uh, I say, we're going to isolate it. We're going to test it. And if, and if uh, it pops, oh, here I had said number two, pops positive number two, um, uh, then then we have that discussion knowing, like, maybe we sent video or something saying this animal is completely isolated from everything else. Like, there's no way it could have gotten anything from our collection because that's what somebody said. If you, if you grab something from somebody else, and maybe you don't have a clean collection and you had it in there for six months, and then the thing pops positive number three, uh, the POPs positive counter. Uh, like, you know, it's, it's hard to say whether it was from the snake that you just got or if it was floating in your collection for years and it gave it to that snake that was clean. So it's really important to have some isolated quarantine test before it goes main thing and have something pre-worked out with the seller. Or if you're comfortable with them doing it, like, you know, maybe they are very comfortable with that. Um, then they, they test it and you wait for a negative. And then when they send it to you, you also quarantine it like a zoo would and then test it and make sure that maybe the shipping didn't, maybe when the first person tested the viral load was very low because the animal was in a stress-free environment. And maybe when the animal gets shipped and it's, it's in somebody's care for another month, it pops positive. Um, And uh, you know, you have that. So that's one of those things, but from moving on from that um, coming back here and then having all the chondros die the venomous we tested the venomous too we started with arboreal venomous um to you know because i I felt like they were similar to a chondro so like let's let's test those like the venomous version of a chondro and um we never we never got any positives but um there have been nidovirus positive venomous snakes bronx zoo got a confiscation from uh from new york with uh that was the well-known confiscation so i'm not saying anything i'm not supposed to or that that the whole world doesn't know but uh that those animals they went from that person's collection and a pretty nice venomous collection too i feel for the person because i was there once um but uh zoo got the collection and put it into isolated quarantine from the rest of the collection because it came from an unknown source and they and they have their own vet team test for the stuff and uh you know ironically a bunch of stuff popped positive and uh we did not see that in our collection and i was surprised to hear that too because we were having chondros and and carpets drop like flies and i just thought these things were next but it never happened and we lost a lot of our green tree collection but we um we had a decent venomous collection and i was able to make my side of a living producing, um, you know, certain species and, and sending them off to, um, Venom Labs that we have relationships and what have you, as well as, as professional private people that are permitted and and experienced and, and whatnot, and was able to kind of, um, uh, use that as, as my side of the income, as if I was, you know, working for a zoo. Um, but after a, a little bit, you know, it just like, it's kind of a it's a difficult way to make a living with with some of those snakes and uh, and producing a lot of you know fortunately a lot of venomous yeah. uh, or, a lo- or a lot of a lot of the fortunately a lot of the species that we have the venom labs are taking all that stuff in there and that's on for you know uh, anti venom production and pharmaceutical research or you know all kinds of you know awesome uh, things that uh, that uh, all these different scientists are doing research on now and so so you feel ethically good about that but I started not feeling ethically good about sending off a lot of stuff to private people that I didn't know. You know, when I knew somebody like it was, uh, you know, like it's different when you know somebody, but like if you're doing it to make a living and you've got Joe Schmo from Pennsylvania, Texas, or wherever you could just have them without any special permit, you know, they're, they're old enough. They talk a decent game through uh, email or a message or on the phone. And then you sell them an animal and, you know, they might be free handling that thing on YouTube the next day. Or somebody else else buys it and then gives it to one of those guys because, you know, those guys know that you're not going to sell one to them. Um, So maybe somebody else, one of their cronies buys it for you, talks a good game, says, oh, yeah, I hate free handling. And then you get the thing. They say we send them something. They have a permit or they talk a good game and they check out. And then they're they're not you know when we send something to a venom lab or a zoo I know where that animal like how that animal's gonna live out its life and who it's going to when I'm selling something or a close friend or somebody that is a professional private person that you've known for a while and checks out um, but uh, you know a lot of these people if you're if you're selling these kind of snakes to make income like there's gonna be some people that your snakes go to that you're not happy about those snakes going to those people. And and they may not have got it directly from you. Somebody else bought it from you, and the snake that you worked so so hard to establish and you know whatever went to an asshole you never wanted it to go to. And that, right. so so I you know that that was another encouraging thing moving into kind of a public you know scenario where we don't we can we can start to earn a living by. Um, doing education stuff and bringing people in to see the beautiful collection we keep versus and and still if we breed stuff send things to zoos like you know the bronx or or venom labs and stuff and, and and certain private people that have earned the ability to keep these that you could vouch for i don't have any problem with that but just the way that the world's going like, I just, I see why zoos have to protect themselves and and be very careful who they deal with, what they say, the people that they hire. I get it now, you know? But you got it, like, you, public looks at it from a different perspective than private, and the, and the public zoo world has really groomed me to kind of see a lot of the flaws uh, out there and, and help promote good knowledge. And that's why I said we're kind of like the bridge between the private sector and and the zoo world because, because we interface with both and we want to bring new people in and, and groom them professionally and put them out there to where they could get a job at an AZA facility working with us, you know, and right. if, 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 if one of these zoos curators that knows us and works with us or whatever and somebody puts on Reptile Preservation Institute as, because uh, we went from Terrestrial and Arboreal, which is, we still have a functioning LLC. the Terrestrial and Arboreal is, we still we, we have our rodents under there because we, well, although we do feed our own collection, um, we also surplus to some local uh, people here and, um, you know, are able to help generate funds to take care of everything here because this is expensive, you know, so the rodents feed our collection, but they also help grow what we're doing in that infancy of growing this public facility where... We're hoping uh, we're, we're, uh, we're going 5013 uh, c with our facility, with all the paperwork. And you have to start off as like a C Corp for so we're, we're an actual entity, but then you have to do all the, the stuff to, to go uh, nonprofit. And, and for what we're doing, it just makes a lot of sense because everything goes back into the facility anyway and we and we put so much we put so much of our own funds into this and you know we we, we're not made of money so like it's it's a way for us to to do good and and get some help along the way because you know we say like our 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 motto is you know we're trying to grow something uh, bigger than ourselves larger than ourselves and um you know what got us here is not going to take us there. We, we went all in Pia and I from our, you know, from all of our journeys in life to Rita, And on this point we've, we've funded everything ourselves and, and we're at a pretty, we're, we're, we're growing, but at this point we need help, you know? So, and, and that's, what's nice about our, the, the Florida program and everything getting uh, hours for, uh, for professional bench training or crocodilians and whatnot. So we have been able to get a lot of Help with our collection and uh, and helping in the caretaking um, because of people who want to volunteer their time for knowledge um, to get better at keeping these animals and doing it safely and learning all the regulations and all of that stuff and um, you know that's kind of where the Reptile Preservation Institute kind of we terrestrial well i we also learned a lesson with terrestrial and arboreal because like you guys could say that because you're herpers like try it when you're trying to say it over the phone to give a credit card number or just like talking to somebody at home depot and you have a, a home depot card and they they're trying to pronounce terrestrial and arboreal it, like they say it all different kinds of ways and it was just like hey the general public doesn't even know what that means which and, and you explain it to them but they just kind of still don't care. So Reptile Preservation Institute was, you know, just like you guys heard about with the alligators that we got from from the nuisance trappers. These guys were, you know, are conservationists at heart and they didn't want to send the animal to a hunting ranch or or process it because they're large animals and they've lived out their whole lives this far and they they didn't want to If they could send it to a facility that's capable of keeping it, they'd rather do that. So there's the preservation part of it and then the the, the institutional uh, part there the institute you know you kind of think of it like white white lab coats and all sciencey like the the institute reptile preservation institute but but really you know institute is a teaching place and and we have been you know from uh, all of my own mistakes to learning in the zoo field um and being in positions of training the next generation and new staff members and everything um, I have been I, I've gotten really good at teaching people how to do this uh, professionally, you know, and to take it seriously. And that's kind of all my knowledge and skill set with working these kind of animals. Like I didn't want it to die with me. You know, I've learned a lot of stuff along the way, like a lot of good beneficial techniques that from being in the zoo field and, and coming from the private sector that a lot of private people will never get to see unless they work in an AZA zoo. So by having this permit structure, where people have to come in to get a good education, to be able to get a license. and if they're really serious about this, they learn more than just to handle venomous snakes or crocodilians. You know, they're learning, they're getting educated on laws and containment and 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 uh, you know caging and all of this other stuff and just you know life practices and just hear from all of our mistakes and our our, our trials or errors or failures and successes and and just you know, rinse and repeat. And it's like, we feel, we, we have been uh, a part of people working with us and, and going and getting jobs in professional ACA facilities and other facilities. And um, these zoos respect us because they know they, that we practice professional keeping and safe handling techniques. People, the zoos know that we're not cowboys. We present ourselves as professional as we can. You know, on social media and stuff, and we like to say I, we're professionally un, unprofessional because um, you know, I, when it comes to reptiles and safety and everything, I'm top notch professional. When it comes to just casual conversation and whatnot, I've been uh, I've been known to place the uh, the 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 well well cali- you know uh, well calibrated um, f bomb there. Um, right right you know and and whatnot so i'm not i'm not always or the um uh the the, uh, guy can't even think right now you need to you know it's getting late but um you know it's like we don't take our we take what we do really seriously but we don't
1: Uh uh-oh i'll bet his
0: phone died
1: i bet his phone died Well, uh, Scott asked a question when we were talking about um, Florida stuff, asking if uh, all uh, hydropids are illegal because sea snakes are illegal. So there was always a rumor that sea snakes and sea crates were illegal in Florida. It actually wasn't until this past April of 2021, they actually made sea snakes and sea crates illegal in Florida. So depending on how you want to look at taxonomy, they don't include genuses; they just say sea snakes and sea crates. So it's up to basically up to interpretation on their end. It's very gray area, um, but uh, it's officially illegal in Florida. So, but again, all Australasian Australia. lapids are not illegal; just sea stuff for for obvious reasons. So, yeah. <clears throat> and I believe
0: that they're just a pain in the ass to keep.
1: Oh, a hundred percent, and it's not even. It's not even them in terms of their handling or, or or them per se as a species. It's the husbandry, the maintenance, tank size, water purity, all that stuff, saline levels. Um, but I do remember uh, from the NIDO talks that we had at the last Carp- Southeast Carpet Fest, I'm 99% sure it was Bittis. The genus of Bittis were had tested positive for nidovirus or serpentovirus C- of some sort. I believe it was Nazicornis and uh, uh Rhino-Keros. So I believe those two had tested positive. But uh, I'm pretty sure we have that on the THP uh, YouTube channel, right? Yes. Yeah, that whole that whole lecture is on well we the- also
0: did an episode with with <clears throat> uh, Tillis and Dr. Asuboff right. talks specifically about it. So
1: right. Well, I mean, as much as I'd love to bring him back, we're at two twenty-five now. So yes. it is the witching hour, kids. What are you holding there, Justin?
0: My adult male beards.
1: It's a handsome animal.
0: You keep me company. He's the, yeah. of the Mex- one of the Mexicans. Nice. Mexicans. Mexico. He's super chill, man. He's he's awesome. I wish the female was like this. <laughs> He just kind of putts around. Yep. She just runs. That'll happen. That'll happen. I don't know if you can really appreciate the metal-ishness. You can't go there, dude. Stop. He's like yeah, getting all difficult. caught up in my freaking headphone cord and mm-hmm. all that other crap.
1: Nice. This thing won't focus. Yeah, it's there. You can see the hues. So well, on that note, thank you to all who partake who part partook part, partook, partook in this impromptu live episode of the Herbiticulture Podcast. Justin, is there anything you uh, wanna throw in there?
0: Uh, this was episode 127 thank you to Steve Snakesuary and his venom hot sauce and MP cages and exotics and bear Rat snakes because they're bear
1: all- die. so yeah we will be returning Monday evening for snakes and stogies
0: 83
1: Eighty three. I will be showing off and the uh, spiky Bill horn will be there. I will be there in the flesh so and yes, uh, Scott, uh, Cody's lack of breathing was very impressive.
0: He's not human.
1: He's not human. He's extraterrestrial.
0: And we'll see everybody at Daytona too.
1: That's yeah. Coming up. So. Very soon. Very soon.
0: Check out RPI on uh, Facebook. They have a Patreon too with some cool, like, sort of behind the scenes videos of stuff oh, they're yeah. doing. Uh, I think it's only a couple bucks. I think I do like the $5 tier, if I'm not mistaken. And it's pretty cool to see all the stuff they're working on and sort of the process behind some of it. And
1: Yeah. It's awesome. Oh. It's far more than just Snakes and Racks. So. Correct. Yeah. And uh, did we get a, a date for the Raps show, or are we just going to assume it's going to be the next couple of weeks? No, Providing we schedules get aligned.
0: We haven't yet.
1: <clears throat> okay. Um,
0: just trying to figure out who's going to be on it and when. This is pretty much where we're at with that.
1: All right, cool. Very cool. Focus. That's because you showed that beautiful snake that's all it have to see now. All right, guys and gals. Thanks for watching, and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye.